Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Great double feature for you today. So thrilled for the first time to welcome both of our guests today. First up, we've got Reggie Hudlin. Now, you know Reggie Hudlin from maybe his television work. He was the president of BET for several years, uh, was part of the group that made the transition from music videos uh, to the uh, scripted uh, drama comedies and documentaries you see at BET. He also uh, was behind the Marvel Knights Black Panther cartoon. His great comic book work on uh, things like Spider-Man and a great run on Black Panther, among other things. He uh, wrote Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained adaptation for Vertigo and been an instrumental movie producer on uh, great things like his own creation, the original House Party with Kid and Play, one of my favorites. Boomerang, the exceptional Eddie Murphy movie featuring Martin Lawrence, David Alan Greer, Halle Berry, Robin Givens, so many great actors in that film. Now, Reggie is joining Milestone Media. Uh, along with uh, Dennis Cowan, Derek Dingle, and the group, and uh, is not only bringing back uh, some of the great Milestone characters of the 90s, but as he is quick to point out, there are new projects in the works for Milestone Media. And uh, really was a pleasure to meet him at San Diego, and I'm like, God, I'd, I'd love to have you on Ward Balloon. He said, yes, we had a great first conversation. I hope it's the first of many, and uh, really wonderful to be talking to Reggie Hudlin today on Ward Balloon. Then we're going to be talking to the world record holder for the biggest uh, collection of comic books by a single person. And that's not stores. This, this is by an individual. And that is my friend uh, Bob Bretall, for, uh, fellow podcaster, uh, the guy who's behind ComicSpectrum.com. Uh, I'm ha- very happy to talk to Bob and just have a fun conversation, fan to fan, about uh, what we love about comics, our early comics. He gives you all the tips on uh, how to consider uh, your collection and the things you need to know. If you want to shoot for uh, breaking Bob's record, it isn't going to be easy. The guy's been doing it uh, since the early 70s. And uh, it's a really impressive story about how he amassed his collection, uh, various highlights of his collection, and uh, just a good time. We talk about uh, some of the fun things we saw at San Diego Comic-Con and uh, just a good chat with Bob Bretal to wrap things up on today's Word Balloon. Brought to you today by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, for your fine support. If you'd like to support this podcast, uh, you can go to wordballoon.com and click on the tab. It'll give you the information you need. Uh, Word Balloon is using Patreon to uh, help fund the show, get me to the various conventions, make the connections so that I can make better podcasts and uh, bring you the best entertainment possible each week. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the Cincinnati Comic-Con, happening September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. Uh, make sure you check it out because there are great guests that are going to be coming. We're talking about uh, people like Rick Remender, Cameron Stewart, Brendan Fletcher, uh, Matthew Sturgis, Chris Robertson, Ryan Brown, Cullen Bunn, Chris Burnham, Sean Crystal, Matthew Clark, uh, Adam Withers and Comfort Love, Sean Dove. 
Mike Norton, Mike Marisi, of course, Tony and Kara Moore are our hosts, and uh, I will be there moderating panels and uh, bring you the coverage uh, on Word Balloon. But I hope you'll join us because it's a great end of the summer convention. I've been talking about it for the last few weeks. You have to experience it for yourself. The Cincy Comic Con happening at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center, September 12th and 13th. If you want information on how to sign up, go to CincyComicCon.com. Really excited about our first guest today on Word Balloon, and that's Reggie Hudlin. Now, Reggie is an accomplished comic book writer, great run on Black Panther, on Spider-Man. He also uh, did some amazing work on Django Unchained with Quentin Tarantino. He's also an accomplished television producer and director, currently working on Murder in the First as a director. His producing credits, well, he did the Black Panther cartoon for Marvel Knights that ended up on BET, in addition to uh, working on uh, Static Shock, the uh, great cartoon of the 90s. He is now working with uh, the Milestone Media guys, uh, Dennis Cowan and Derek Dingle, and has joined Milestone to not only bring back characters like Static and uh, Rocket and Icon and some of the greats hardware, but also uh, looking towards new creations as well for Milestone Media. If you want to hear two great career-spanning interviews with Reggie, I want to point you to two podcast episodes that feature him on uh, the Industry Standard podcast with Barry Katz and then also Alias Smith and Leroy, which is a very funny podcast. And on both of those, uh, you'll get great background on on Reggie's full career. I only had a half hour or so with Reggie, so I really wanted to uh, get to the subjects that I wanted to cover. I I do hope he'll come back. I have a feeling he might. Um, It sounded like he had fun talking to me. And, uh, you know, let him know if you uh, enjoyed our conversation that you'd like to hear him again. Real interesting guy. And it's a pleasure to get his point of view on what's going on today. So uh, let's uh, transition to my conversation with Reggie Hudlin now on Word Balloon. Very happy to welcome uh, Reggie Hudlin, the exceptional writer, producer, director, comic book guy, uh, all around good nerd uh, to the Word Balloon podcast. It really is a pleasure, Reggie. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Good. Glad to be here. You know, um, I had no idea. I was listening to a couple other podcast interviews you've done in the last couple of years, and mm-hmm. uh, one with uh, Jeff Katz and one with Alias uh, Smith and Leroy, and yeah. uh, they were great. And I want to point my listeners to those as far as like long biographical interviews because our time is short, and I really want to hit you up with some, you know, basic comic book things and just your position, not only with Milestone, but just with where Geek Media is going and is currently, and just with your background and everything, I, I really want your observations and, and the fact that I think you're in a great position to take advantage of the rest of the world. I mean, the geeks have inherited the earth, as we had hoped. <laughs> I think that's absolutely the case. I, I think... Um, the, the, you know, the rise, um, I mean, with everyone from Quentin Tarantino to, you know, the rise of the superhero movie, um, you know, the shrining of Bruce Lee, all this speaks <laughs> to a, a shared sensibility, which has now become the mainstream. Absolutely, man. And, and believe me, I, I've, I, in my pre-recorded interview I've, or introduction, I've already mentioned your credits from Django Unchained to your, your excellent work at Marvel on, on Spider-Man and Black Panther. You're joining the Milestone, uh, Milestone universe. Uh, and, you know, I, th- I think this is great. And your body of work speaks for itself. I got to give it up, though, for House Party. 
and, and I didn't know, man. I mean, you know, when I'm a kid watching House Party, although we're we're close to the same age, I'm I'm a couple only just a couple of years younger than you, but mm-hmm. it was great. I love that movie, and I really love Boomerang as well. And you know, you really God, you you know, you take kid and play to another level, and and turn that you know into this movie franchise. I, I don't know if you were involved with two or three. I got checks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the best kind of involvement, so that's the good. Best. No, but I really want to go back. Do you have that original student film that became House Party? Is that like online anywhere or anything? It's not online. I, I have a, a copy of the old 16-millimeter print <laughs> in my closet. Um, I've thought about, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do something with it at some point. Um but it's actually pretty good. Uh, it was good enough to make, make the feature film happen. Um, you know, and for the listeners who don't know, I originally did a 20-minute short version as my senior thesis in college. And it basically, it's the same movie, but it's 20 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really cool. And I, I, I really admire what you were able to do because... You really were of that era where, as you explain in some of these other interviews I was listening to, you took jobs to get access to film equipment. And, mm-hmm. and now we are in this era where really uh, getting the media to make a quality-looking film is a lot easier. And, and really what's happened digitally has democratized the, the potential filmmakers and, and people with content ideas. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm sure you're like, well, shit, where was this stuff, you know, when I was a kid? <laughs> but uh, by the same token, do you see this as like a great opportunity, obviously, for, you know, young people to to kind of get in and, you know, start making stuff? Look, my 10-year-old daughter uses a combination of apps on her iPad where she makes music videos. There you go. And there's got all these cool, uh, cool effects. <laughs> So, and she doesn't involve me at all. She just does it on her own. Sure. I look over her shoulder and I go, oh, I went to college for that. <laughs> You're doing it in, high, in elementary school. That's, that's great. Man. But it really is great. I, I, look, I don't think there's, you know, I'm not a believer in, you know, things have to be hard. No, I think things have to be good. Right. And when you remove, you know, access and, and money as an obstacle for people, I think that's good. You know, look, everyone can write. Doesn't mean everyone's a good writer, but everyone can pick up a pencil and paper and write. So why shouldn't everybody make a movie or make a, tell a story using uh, uh, this equipment and whatever medium it ends up? When you're uh, working now with Milestone, and I'm lo- really looking forward to talking to Dennis as well, because a lot has happened since Dennis has last been on Word Balloon. Um, I, uh, Dennis Cowan, for people who are listening, um, I I'm really interested in like where things stand right now because a lot of things since Milestone 2.0 has been announced have been announced. We don't know where they are right now in per, in terms of production. Uh, a static live action series that will be on a digital Warner's digital platform. Um, certainly the comic books and you guys made a lot of announcements at Comic Con just a couple weeks ago. But mm-hmm. if we could, I'm, I'm interested in you know how much you can tell me. Uh, as the new guy in Milestone and everything, but but also the guy with like you know the TV and movie background, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Like where where do things stand right now with the live action Static series? You know, it's going great. You know, doing a lot of writing, uh, and, and it's funny because I'm simultaneously writing the digital series and writing the comic book. Excellent and same character, more or less the same story. 
Um, but each medium is really different. And as I switch back and forth, I get insights and ideas from one that help shape the other. So it, it's been a really fun process. Is Do things like the Netflix Marvel stuff influence what you guys might be doing with this series? Because, uh, you know, initially we heard that it was going to be short form. And don't get me wrong, I really think even mm-hmm. Marvel... Uh, the way they introduced Agent Carter on her own in that 10-minute short on the Iron Man 3 DVD, you could do a mm-hmm. lot with short form. But, you know, then, you know, something like Daredevil comes out, 13-hour kind of, you know, something equivalent to The Wire or, or any great, you know, cable series. Um, you know, does that influence and say, oh, maybe we should do that? And, and has the dynamic changed at all in terms of the plans for Static? Well, it- we're still making the big picture plans. Okay. You know, not just for Static, but for the entire Milestone universe. Uh, one of the things I always loved about Milestone is that the full name of the company is Milestone Media. Yes, sir. Uh, and and it it was never just a comic book company. And in the latest incarnation of it, it's always been more than that and you know and the fact that we're working simultaneously in about four different mediums uh has 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 really been great and um so we're we're telling the static shock story but you know you can't help but think about all the stories and all the different platforms and Mm -hmm. yes it's great that you have what netflix is doing and what dc is doing on the cw and other networks and what marvel is doing and of course the feature films that everyone's making so it's all tremendous opportunity and and so it's a matter of well what story is best told in what medium Okay, I understand that. And I also think, I'm guessing, uh, based on what we've heard, um, you know, I know, you, like you said, you're working on a static comic book. Would we likely see that first? And would we see Milestone comic books first, Or do you think? Or do you think we might see the digital stuff first? What, what, do, you, what do you think might debut? Or is that still too early to say? As, you know, the old uh, wise saying is, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> I, we're, we're, we're trying to work out the timing so that they fall together. Um, that's not a small feat as we put together the creative teams for the comics, as we're working on script and, you know, and all the other production elements for making the show. Uh, you know, are certainly are, are, since I'm involved in all of them, you know, it would be great if we could figure out the sequencing so they all support each other. Sure. Um, uh, but, you know, everything's still very much in, in, in motion. So, okay. it, it, you know, we don't have hard deadlines right now, which is great, quite frankly, because the focus from everyone is like, how do we make this the best we could possibly be as opposed to we've got to make a date for better or for worse. I can appreciate that, definitely. I just wondered, too, I mean, because I know that, like, Static briefly was part of the new 52 for DC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't pan out. Um, there w- Was it Zombie? Yeah, Zombie was another yeah. one as, as well, mm-hmm. right? And that was Milestone, wasn't it, back in the day? Correct, correct. And, look, I think there was real, real lessons that everybody learned from. And the takeaway that we had and, you know, DC agreed was... These characters thrive best in their own world, you know, in the Dakota universe. You bet. Uh, so that, you know, so when the 
the phrase Earth M um, was suggested, we were like, yeah, that's it. They live on Earth M. And it was great uh, hanging out with Grant Morrison at Comic-Con. And, you know, he had left seven slots open. And, you know, we all agreed now there's six. <laughs> we're taking one for us. That's fantastic. That's great. Mm-hmm. And, and also, um, it was fun to see for a while things like in young justice icon and, and you know forgive me i always focus more on icon than uh the younger hero and i forget her the name. rocket yes yeah rocket all right yeah shame on me um yeah it was fun seeing them as part of young justice but i agree with you it, it just seems like there is still so many stories to be told in dakota and in the milestone world and everything that um no i'm i'm really excited and i'm glad that you guys were able to work out whatever to make this stuff happen because yeah. these are great characters. And Jesus, I mean, I even remember a couple of years ago having Dwayne McDuffie on and talking about the Static Shock, which you worked on animation series. And it was so great. And it's like, that's a show that I know everyone always says, where the hell are the DVDs? How come we, you know, that was a good show and, and you know, performed really well. And, and it's like, there's no excuse why these characters shouldn't be out there. So I'm glad that Milestone 2.0 is happening and you guys have this opportunity, as you've said in interviews, not just to bring the old characters back, but new ideas for them and new characters as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, what's fantastic uh, about what, you know, uh, the original team, they created great characters. They have great bones. You really measure comic book characters in very long lengths of time. Uh, you look at the past couple of years, we've had Superman and Batman celebrate their 75th anniversary. Mm-hmm. You know, you look, you know, how old Captain America, Spider-Man, these characters, 50, 75 years, and they're still resonant. They still are connecting to more audiences than ever. And, and the great thing about Marvel is those characters have the same appeal. From the time we've announced the return of those characters, everyone's been yelling for everything. You know, not just Static Shot, but for Icon and Rocket, for Blood Syndicate, for Hardware, for Zombie. People want everything back. <laughs> and that's made a big impression on us. That's really cool. I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. uh, because your involvement in the Marvel Knights Black Panther animated series, and of course the comic itself, but, but focusing on the series for a second, um, in conversations I've had lately with uh, Joe Casada and Jeff Loeb, um, you know, and, and we've seen good projects come and go from the major networks. Constantine on MZ, NBC is an obvious example. Um, mm-hmm. And where the audience is, because everyone is into DVRing and shifting and watching things when they can, the, the big hurdle to still get over is how that equates with advertisers that are still, at least from my perception, counting on that first run you know, it's on Monday night at seven. Okay, the advertiser really is mostly interested in the audience that's there Monday night at seven. It's nice for the network that the DVR audience is there or whatever. Do you have a, a handle on that? Are advertisers getting? Is there a way to please them because they're the ones paying for this stuff? But is there a way to like you know please them, but also you know get that stuff out there and have it last longer than you know a one a one season run? Well, I mean, the fact is that there are now non-advertiser models that work. Um, when you look at the the Netflix model that you sure. mentioned before, they're they're not an advertiser-based company, um, but them doing this quartet of series with um, with Marvel is working great for them. Uh, 
conversely, uh, you look at DC, you know, they've been doing these direct-to-video animated feature films. All have been critically and commercially successful. So, you know, yes, there, you know, uh, there are advertiser-based models that worked, and there are non-advertiser-based models that work. That's what's so encouraging is that the audience is so excited about this world, these kind of stories, that they're accepting them, whether it's for kids, whether it's for all ages, whether it's adult-oriented. They're finding the stories that they like wherever they happen to appear. I'm not going to ask you to open the books, but are you able to make independent milestone deals from Warner's, or will Warner Brothers always be a partner in this milestone stuff? Well, I mean... You know, milestone, you know, milestone uh, legacy. You know, the Dakota Universe, uh, which were the characters that were created in the '90s. You know, we really wanted to work it out with uh, with DC because there is that great legacy that you know they built together. Mm-hmm. And you know, Jim Lee was very enthusiastic. He pushed really hard to make this deal work. And you know, when Jeff Johns heard about what we were doing, he got very excited. He was very supportive about making it work. And the fact that they're not only supporting it uh, from a corporate point of view, but they are contributing artistically to the Milestone universe speaks to their level of commitment, which is fantastic. Cool. Now, I don't presume that everything we publish is going to be um, in, you know, uh, appropriate for DC Comics. You know, again, you know, uh, and not everything we're going to do is a comic book. We're going to be doing a lot of different storytelling in a lot of different mediums, but, you know, we're certainly happy to have DC as a partner as we revive the classic milestone characters. And DC certainly made it clear that they're excited about not just the old characters, but new characters as well. So you'll be creating new Dakota or or Earth M characters as well as other projects that might be outside of that universe and therefore can be exploited in the best possible way, you know, and these other platforms as well. That's what you're telling me. Exactly. Very cool. That's that's great, man, because, again, I just think there is such a great opportunity. And and the fact that we've got talented people truly like yourself and, and Dennis and, you know, Derek and his contributions to Milestone. I'm, I'm really sorry that Dwayne couldn't be there. And in fact, was hoping to talk to you during uh, the Long Beach uh, uh, convention. Uh, I wasn't mm-hmm. able to attend, but the fact that you guys, you know, created that Dwayne McDuffie Award, I thought was just really, really great. And I, I had the the pleasure of, of talking to Dwayne a few times and I had him on Word Balloon a couple times. And, you know, just such a just a really smart a uh, wonderful guy that really, you know, is, you know, as much of a nerd as any fan you could point out on the street, but also had the create creative chops to, you know, bring these stories al- alive. And it's, man, I just always felt bad for him in particular when they gave him things like the Justice League comic book. But it's like, uh, oh, but, you know, Superman is in the round and you can't have Batman and you can't have Wonder Woman. And he's like, well, shit, can I have the Adam? No. And it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> So, you know, it's like, what the hell? Dwayne made all those great Justice League animated stories. And it's like he finally gets the comic book. And it's like, all right, goddamn, man. You didn't tie his hands together. It was his feet as well. You gagged him and threw him overboard and said, good luck. Jesus. You know, but, you know, the thing is, Dwayne is such a brilliant writer. He can make, you know, anything work, any circumstance work. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, truly the guys who really taught me comics were, you know, 
Dwayne, Dennis, and Kyle Baker. Those are the guys who really, you know, taught me this industry, and I'm always going to be grateful to them. And, you know, from the very beginning, um, when they were first launching Milestone, I really wanted to be a part of it. They had invited me to join, but I had just done my first movie. I was getting ready to do uh, Boomerang with Eddie Murphy, so I thought, well, maybe I should stick to my day job and get that down before I stretch into other mediums. So when, you know, Derek invited me to become part of uh, the new milestone, I was no way I was going to blow uh, a second window. You know, Dwayne and I had been talking for years endlessly about how to revive Milestone. And, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking that, you know, he's not here with us because, you know, you know it, was, it was always on our minds. It was always a topic of conversations with us. Um, but, you know, his passing at the same time really was the final impetus uh, for us to like, okay, well, we can't, you know, just let it pass. We've got to, you know, keep that work and that legacy alive. And I was really happy that, you know, Matt Wayne and um, Charlotte Fullerton, you know, you know, his, his, uh, his widow and, you know, his best friend came together and created that uh, amazing award uh, at Long Beach Comic Con. And they were generous enough to invite, you know, me and Dennis to come down and help present. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing, and, and I think it's an extraordinary award, and, you know, we'll, you know, certainly be supporting it, you know, from now on, because, you know, he's a, he's a great inspiration for any writer, uh, uh, because he was just uh, an incredibly facile guy. And I remember he had moved, he had left New York, he was living back with his family in Florida, and he was telling me about a couple opportunities he had to write comic books. Uh, I mean, not write uh, cartoons in Los Angeles, but he wasn't sure. And I just begged, threatened, (laughs) (laughs) did whatever it took to convince him to come out. Because I said, look, you're that really rare thing. You're an amazingly talented, fast writer. And whether the comic book world appreciates you or not, Hollywood will eat you up in the best of the word, and that's what they did. Here, here, man, absolutely. And and uh, as much as we miss him and stuff, it was great to go out on the positive note he did with All Star Superman, the adaptation of the Grand. Oh Wilson man, story. it was great. Absolutely, it was beautiful. Absolutely. Well, and yep. that's you know, I wonder what you think because I've, this is a conversation I've been having with guys like Mark Millar and uh, and and Brian Bendis and and others that you know uh, Kirkman was the first example of you know really stepping out after kind of making his name with Marvel and and doing what he did with Walking Dead and stuff and it seems now with these new ideas that you guys might be having with Milestone um you can take what you got from the big 2 and really apply it to new ideas you yourself i mean you you've been you know an independent storyteller anyway with your films and your television that you've been doing as well and um i just see it's i don't think of dc and marvel as an apprenticeship but it is some sort of or college because it's bigger than that but by the same Mm -hmm. token it's like make for most traditional comic book people make your mark at the big two build that audience and then when you're ready with your real you know your original ideas Take that audience with you, go the image route or, or to some of these other publishers, and that's mm-hmm. when we're getting Lumberjanes or John Hickman's great books or, you know, all these other books that are now, 
you know, happening on their own with that Walking Dead model. But again, these guys kind of and women have have learned their chops at the big two first. Yeah, I mean, I was very happy to you know start my career at Marvel to work with you know Axel Alonso, who was just such a great. Uh, you know, mentor to me, you know, working with him on the Black Panther and the Spider-Man books. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so great to see him, you know, uh, he, you know, ascend uh, within the company. Um, And I think, look, I think, you know, all this success is healthier for the medium. You know, it's not an either or. You know, you see folks go back and forth, you know, between working for the mainstream publishers, doing their own books. Um... You know, I, I you know I don't think any comic book publisher begrudges the success of Walking Dead. It's a great comic book series. It's a great TV series. You know, anything that gets people into the medium helps uh, rise all boats. Do you? Um, I, I was glad to see you come back with uh, the Django uh, Vertigo book, and um, mm-hmm. it was. I, lo- I mean, God, you had wonderful artists as well. I mean, obviously starting with Quentin's story and uh, you know adapting that, but then as well, and and using your own storytelling skills, obviously as well. But then to to have R.M. Guerra and Jason Aaron and Dennis and all the other artists that you had, uh, you know, contributing to the book and stuff, and it seems like Django is really this great breakthrough character. I, I saw you mention Gunhawks uh, from Marvel, or maybe it was in that reference to Quentin reading Gunhawks back in the early 70s, that really short-lived Marvel Western. Of- yeah, no, it, it, you know, Quentin is as uh, completely well-read as a comic book fan <laughs> as he is uh, as a, uh, you know, as a filmmaker, television. He just knows more than you, and I don't care who you are. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, you know, it was a real challenge, you know, adapting his screenplay because it's a it's a great piece of literature into itself. In fact, that's how the whole thing happened. Uh, while we were you know producing the film, um, we were approached by a publisher who wanted to do an illustrated screenplay, and it turns out what they wanted was to publish the screenplay and have production stills, and Quentin had absolutely no interest in that. And I said, well, I get that. You know, I, I thought they were wanting to do a graphic novel or something. He goes, well, yeah, let's do that. I'm like, oh, finally, now we're talking. And, you know, for me, adapting it, it was just a matter of being as invisible as possible and getting uh, his words and his images and his ideas on the page as much as possible. I, I wanted to disappear into a corner and, and just showcase his brilliance. Um, and, you know, and he was so helpful in terms of figuring out, you know, how to translate it. You know, he would say really smart stuff like, oh, yeah, because he would have these incredible scene descriptions. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what do we do with that? They go, oh, this put on the caption. I'm like, yes! Captions. I know they're out of style in the modern world, but they're they're perfect for this, and because they're you know you, you, they're so well written. So he just has spectacular instincts. And then when we did the sequel, the Django Zorro book, yeah, um, you know, just watching him and Matt Wagner collaborate was incredible. You know, you got two just fantastic storytellers, completely in sync. And just coming up with this great stuff. 
You know, and it's it's sad because and, and you know, saying this as a, as a dumb white guy, but it really is sad that it's finally taken until now that um, it seems like the entire audience is more accepting of, you know, um, heroes of various color, of various mm-hmm. sexes, of various orientations. And it's it's very thrilling. And the great news is that means there's an entirely new way to look at old traditional adventure stories, but they immediately become sort of different because of the person, the hero is a different person. It's not the white male that for centuries we've had as the lead in in a lot of our adventure stories and mythologies. And now finally it's like, wow, well, it is going to be different because it is a black person or a Hispanic person or a woman or a gay person. I always say that, you know, with each generation, the mental health of our country gets better and better. And, you know, if kids don't care. They just want the cool thing. And, and <laughs> they, if, you know, my, my, I, you know, my daughter goes on play dates. They've got every kind of Barbie, you know, black Barbies, white Barbies. They just want, want, they, they listen to all kinds of music. So it, it, it just, we're, you know, you know, it's like the Berlin Wall. It just looks yeah. like, oh, well, that'll always be there. Oh, you, there's nothing. What can you do about that? And all of a sudden, it's just gone. And you got to write it down. Those people forget that it was even there in the first place. And, you know, yes, you know, we still, you know, as like a racism is fading, but prejudice is here to stay. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but the fact is, you know, things are getting better. And uh, there's a lot of people who want to encourage the idea that things are not and that people are really at each other's throats. But I just find in a human-to-human basis, I don't care where you are in this country, people are nice. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, and I think Comic-Con is one of those places where it doesn't matter what you like. It's like we all come together for Comic-Con and we all have a great time. And it was nice that things seemed relatively calm and that no, no yep. stupid kind of you know outbreaks happen. And and that's great. Or even um, it's funny because you mentioned, you know, Bruce Lee and everything earlier. I loved in Black Panther uh, before he married Storm, how you had kind of the bachelor party and had everybody mm-hmm. get together. And Shang-Chi was there pretty much as in the Bruce Lee role. And, exactly. And you even made Fu Manchu into Han, which I thought was like a really good, <laughs> a good fix, man, because that's the thing. I, God, I love those uh, original stories, although it's, you know, it's such it's such a shame, man, because. There is there's just a little bit of I think if someone reads that cold today and doesn't put it in context, you know, you got things like um, I forget his name, the British uh, agent, oh. n- not uh, not James Bond's son, but uh, not Clive Reston, but Black Jack, yeah, Black Jack Tar, yeah, yeah uh-huh. Black Jack Tar, and you know he'd call he'd call Shang Li Chinaman or whatever, you know, and it's like oh shit, that's not cool, don't do that, mm-hmm. and so there's like. Tough things like that, but you know, really, you look at the body of work, and it's you know what Galacy and Doug Minnick, well, yeah, Doug uh, Munch, yeah, absolutely, and, and struggling before them, yeah, Gene Day, you know, you know, I love that stuff, <laughs> and I, I mean, they would, you know, every story was a James was a James Bond movie starring Bruce Lee, yeah, man, like, and we're not Asian, and we loved it, you know. Well, I mean, it's just like if you have taste. You appreciate what's cool. And that's it. Just like, do you have taste? Yes, no. That's it. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, look, you know, everything we love, if, you know, back in the day, we may look at and go, oh, we would write it this way today. We would change this language. You know, we could tell, we could go even further with this or that story. Um, 
but um you know the point is those things were exciting and inspirational and you know so it's all about how do we build on that how do we grow it well, I, I really think that uh, I'm glad that Milestone made room for you, and I'm glad that they approached you again, and that this time you're like, yeah, I want in. This is really cool, and I think it's a great opportunity for very exciting stories coming up and interesting ideas. And as you say, too, all the various platforms that are out there, I think the possibilities are endless. So I uh, I really look forward to whatever you guys have cooking. What I know you've been doing episodic TV directing lately, mm-hmm. too. Sure. What, what What current stuff have you got coming up that uh, we could point people to? Well, um, I guess the most sure the most immediate thing um, I did two episodes of Murder in the First, which is the uh, Stephen Bochco series on TNT, and um, so uh, you see the the first of those two aired last Monday, and then that was episode seven, and then my next episode is episode nine. Man, we had a great time, you know, that whole cast and crew. Uh, Stephen Bachko has really, again, been a real mentor to me, and I love working with him. And, cool. You know, uh, it, we, it was really some of the best television I've ever done. That's I'm very proud of that work. What is it, real fast, can you, like, compare doing features to TV? I mean, I know it's a ridiculously fast, uh, you know, uh, shooting time and everything. Yeah, it, but But also, like, because I always hear that, you know, like, how, as a director... You know, how much can you facilitate but also get your vision in in that kind of short time period? Yeah, well, you know, what's great about that situation is, you know, I mean, there's a lot of big benefits to television. First of all, some of the best crew people, you know, once they get married and have kids and they actually want to be home, <laughs> they, they, they switch out of feature films and move into television. So you have a really incredible craftsman. So Okay. You know, uh, you could do amazing things at, at an incredibly fast rate. Um, this, the second thing is, you know, with Bochco, he's one of the greatest writers in the history of the medium. Amen. So yeah. you have fantastic scripts. So when you get this stuff, you go, well, I'd be happy to shoot that. I mean, <laughs> you know, when you make movies, you don't always have the fortune of working with a writer as talented as Quentin Tarantino. Uh, so when you get scripts as good as the ones that Bochco does, uh, it's a pleasure to shoot, and because we have a long personal and working relationship, you know, we can talk and we jam back and forth. And I make suggestions, and if he likes it, if he takes it, if he goes, no, 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 that doesn't work with the big plans, then um, we, you know, we keep going. Okay, and is mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously back to you know TV compared to movies and stuff. I'm interested is uh, you know, the whole auteur versus. Uh, movie by committee and television by committee, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's being debated. And certainly in the Marvel movies, when we've seen directors start with a project and then leave and, you know, you haven't worked it, you haven't really beyond uh, Black Panther and stuff. You haven't been in that capacity. But I wonder, given your own feature film uh, experiences and stuff, is it do you think it is director still first in auteur or do you think it? No, it really is collaborative. And thank God we've got this amazing team of people all around us or a little bit of both. How, how would you judge it? It all it all depends on the circumstance. If it's an auteur, better be a good one. You know, it's like Quentin Tarantino is an amazing auteur. And, you know, as a producer, you're, you're there to support his vision. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, there's a lot of wannabes who, you know, would like to be as talented as he is, but they're not. And they need the support of a team. And if they're smart, they'll take it. Um, but, you know, when you look at 
you know, the animation process. You know, some of the best filmmaking in the world today is happening in the world of animation. And, you know, there there is a, a, a creative principle, but it's much more of a team process, and they make fantastic product that way. So, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's not this or that is necessarily the better one. It's like, well, you know, who's on your team? Okay. <laughs> right? Okay. If, you're, if you're doing it on a team and the team is, you know, Showtime Lakers, then I want to be on that team. Has animation changed that way, too? Because for years, decades, it was all about the toy. Can we sell the toy? And if this toy isn't selling, I don't care how good the television series is, it's going to get canceled. And that's happened even very recently as well. So, again, there are other platforms. Is that, is, you know, so is that the case? Is the dynamic for animation changed in terms of beyond telling a good story? You know, what could keep you on the air? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, I look at, you know, to me... We're in a golden age right now uh, in television. There's just there's just great programming, and I don't care what genre you're talking about. I can you know watch TV with my kids and go, oh my god, that's a great show. Mm-hmm. I mean, we love Teen Titans Go. You know, I love sure. Clarence. I mean, these are just <laughs> fantastic shows. Uh, and you know, look at prime time. There's there's too many good shows. I don't here, know here. anyone who can keep up with the amount of quality programming that's on right now. So look, there's always hackery. There's always <laughs> people grinding out and doing bad stuff. The question is, what's the percentage of hackery the good stuff? And I've just never seen more good stuff on TV than now. I completely agree with you, man. Well, you've been very kind with your time. I don't want to keep you, but uh, we'll wrap up. I hope you'll come back because God, oh, gladly. Because oh, that's really great, man. Because seriously, I really want to. I want to know more about like your time with Bernie Mac, uh, boom, <sighs> Boomerang. Let me give it up to you for Boomerang real fast and say because holy crap, you look back now at that cast, and I mean, it, you know, really when it came out, it's like all right, here's a new Eddie Murphy movie. Fine, I'm in, I'm in. But like Halle Berry, Martin Lawrence, David Allen Greer, Chris Rock when he's a kid. I mean, all you guys. I mean, it's just like, man, now step back. And it's like, damn, that's an amazing movie. And also the underlying thing. And I heard you say this on one of the podcasts. I think it was Smith and Leroy, where you said it was a comp- showing that there can be, you know, uh, people of color that make it, but also they keep it real. And it doesn't have to be a choice. And that was just, I thought, so eloquent. And I'm like, that is really great. And it makes that movie, I think, even bigger than what we were getting, you know, from a face value on the screen and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. And, you know, I and I and I'm sure that's going to be the interesting challenge as some of these new ideas percolate from all you guys. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I find that, um, you know, what stuns me sometimes is that I go, wow, we still having the same argument, Uh, you know, decades later. I thought we had proved that point already. Uh, (laughs) But. But then you know, but but uh, you know, but then you find folks who get it, and they let you do what you do. And when you find those opportunities, it's fantastic. Um, what's great is you know now there are executives who grew up on my work. Yes. So, <laughs> so that, that helps. Here, here. No, that's true, man. The money, man. That's absolutely true. But again, I, I I'm glad this democratization is happening. And I'm really excited for the uh, possibilities that are out there. And also, uh, I think from a superhero standpoint, that's going to be interesting storytelling possibilities of, you know, a guy who suddenly has his powers, but maybe some people around him saying, yeah, are you still one of us? 
with all these new abilities and stuff. So that's an interesting analogy, I think. Sure. And, you know, and is he accepted as a hero or was he perceived as a perhaps not fully human threat even before he had powers and now with powers he perceived even more so? Indeed. Absolutely, mm-hmm. man. Well, listen, you, you, like I said, you've been great with your time. I thank you very much and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again and absolutely talking to Dennis with uh, what you guys have coming up for Milestone. But congratulations. It's, it's been really fun watching your work and I look forward to more of it. Thank you so much. Next up, a guy I've known for years. In fact, uh, he's been on the uh, comic book uh, podcast panel uh, in the last few years. Uh, Not recently, though, because he's been uh, devoting his time to his website, Comic Spectrum. And I didn't know until just a couple years ago that the guy holds the record for the largest private comic book collection, as uh, noted by the Guinness Book of World Records. In fact, he just beat his old record. We talk about that. I'm talking about my friend Bob Bretal, and uh, it's a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it from a fan perspective. Bob's thoughts on what's going on these days. And also, of course, we look back at uh, his collection and uh, the things that ex- that we were exposed to as kids because we're, we're literally the same age. And uh, it's fun to talk about uh, the changes in comic books that we've seen over the years. So I hope you enjoy this uh, trip down memory lane with comic collector Bob Brito, now on Word Balloon. Very uh, happy to have on a, uh, a world champion, uh, a documented world champion. Back in the pre-internet days, being from radio, a lot of times callers would just call whether it was on the air or off the air and ask kind of random questions. A lot of times it might have been about billboard music or whatever, sometimes history which drove me nuts even being at a music station. And one of our uh, go-to sources was always the Guinness Book of World Records. And I am uh, pleased to have on uh, a guy who uh, runs a great blog called uh, ComicSpectrum.com and uh, go to ComicSpectrumBlog.wordpress.com and uh, you'll you'll hit him. Uh, Do you have the URL, ComicSpectrum.com? Yeah, ComicSpectrum.com is the website. And on there I've got a lot of... um, general stuff. I've got some stuff about collecting comics, collecting original art, buying new comics, buying old comics, all kinds of stuff. And then one of the things I suck into the website is the blog, which is just easier to uh, do that on WordPress. I respect that. It's Bob Bretal, everyone, uh, formerly of uh, Comic Book Page, if you know your comic book podcasting history. And I don't know, Bobby, are you uh, doing any podcasting anywhere else these days? I am working on a video podcast, uh, do occasional episodes with Rick Gordon. It's called Pop Cult Online. And Indeed. I've got a uh, link to the episodes, uh, the latest ones, always on the front page of ComicSpectrum.com. And then there's also a page that's got an archive of all those uh, historical episodes that we've done in the video era uh, as well. And That's very cool. Episodes so far. Excellent, man. No, I'm, I'm Rick is a Rick's a good guy and a friend and uh, another New York podcaster. So uh, that's awesome. Bobby's in San Diego, and I always run into Bob uh, at the con. And I'm glad we did as as well this year. And as you even said to me tonight when we were talking on Facebook and stuff, it's good that we randomly do just kind of run into each other. But you and I always frequent the same kind of history panels as well. Yeah, I'm always amazed, though, just, you know, with 100,000 plus people in that convention center at any given time that I'll be walking around the floor through some hallway and I'll bump into somebody that I know. Like this year, Jimmy Palmiotti didn't have a booth. 
but I was just walking by and I just saw him and I go, Hey Jimmy. And he knows me. And you know, cause I, cool. I've interviewed him before when I was doing a comic book page and sure. Um, you know, we just caught up for a minute, but you know, it's just, it's funny that you see people like that out of so many. Absolutely. No. And I, and you know, that's for me, that's what I love about comic con. It really is like, I always say it's my summer camp. Because it is. It's like all your out-of-town friends, your summer friends. It's it's nice weather. We're all just having a good time. And, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, 10 minutes or you end up having a meal with somebody or hanging out at the bars after hours or whatever, it's it's great to run into people. And uh, I, first of all, I want to I wanna get this official because this is what we're talking about. Uh, Bob has the largest collection of comic books that are un- uh, all unique comic books. Is that the, is that the uh, you know... The the thing in terms of it the being the actual title the record title is just largest comic book collection but the Guinness right. Guinness has a very strict definition of you know how you define that comic collection so it's you know they have to be unique different comic books so you can't you know like <laughs> if you're a store for instance and right. you know like they've got hundreds of thousands of comic books potentially but they've sure. probably also got you know, 500 copies of X-Men number one, you know, yeah, the Ghibli Ghibli X-Men, X-Men exactly. or, you know, just whatever other thing that's yeah. getting pushed. They've just got, you know, yeah, 90% of that 200,000 are books from the nineties. Yeah. Hey, great. They, they, Excellent. You know, there's just tons of duplicates. You can't count duplicates, sure. although they will now count, um, they will count variant covers. You know, now the last, what, like five, oh, six years that they have unique variant covers because those are, them somewhat different you know they're actually not exactly identical but i don't really collect variant covers that much um sure. i mean i've got a couple of hundred of them but i'm not like a hardcore variant collector so it, it's not really a significant portion of my total but somebody yeah. on facebook was making a joke that like yeah you could beat that record if you just got all the Zenoscope and marvel variant covers from the last five years <laughs> it's true <laughs> you know? kind of Kinda. And what was your response back said, in terms of Yeah, that? well, that's true. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, you know, my, my thing is, is like, I don't have any illusions. You know, it's like my, my count right now, because I, I beat my own record. My record that was in the 2015 book um, was 94,000 and change. And uh, it's now 101,822. Nice guy. And now, what, what's the like? Is do they have a, a cutoff date? Because this is for the 2016 book. Well, I didn't do it for the. Actually, it wasn't the Genesis. Wasn't the actual 2016 book because they run on a really um, long advance schedule on, on that. Like they closed off the stuff for the 2016 book, which comes out in like October, like back in July. That's why okay. when I did my my last. My last one, I ended up having to do it early, way early. My uh, last record was on uh, May 1st, 2014, to get into the book that was published in October of 2014, which was the 2015 book. Um, okay. But they got a hold of me about three weeks ago and said, hey, we're doing another book that's, that talks about collections, and they want to get a little bit more into the mindset of people who have collections. So they said, hey, can we ask you some more detailed questions about your collection? Because, you know, in the 2015 book, I just have like a little tiny blurb. You know, it's 
you know, probably 30 words or something. You know, he has this collection. There's a picture of me in my comic room that they've, um, you know, just got it all set up. And they sent a, ph- a photography team out to take that picture. And I ended up, you know, piling up comics and doing all kinds of things to make it look like I have comics because you know all, i keep them all usually away right and sure. it's funny because when I, the, the book first came out there was all kinds of people would would uh post on facebook and other places on the internet and it's like look how that guy treats his comics he just has them piled up all over the floor kind of a hoarder is he you know it's like you know one of these shows where i'm like sitting in a room you know, surrounded by comics. piles of comics on the floor. It's like, exactly. No, you know, they had me put those like that so it would visually look like I had a lot of comics. I don't normally just leave them in big stacks all over the floor or anything. You know. <laughs> Come on. I shouldn't do that anymore. Showbiz. <laughs> all right, fine. All right. Well, Bob knows. Bob's the master, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the stacks down. That's fine. But, you know, I, uh... I, you, know you can leave them around. It's, you know... <laughs> I'm, I'm single, but so I get away with it. I'm funny because I actually read my comic books. You know, I don't, I don't get the like, things and just like leave them in CGC slabs or whatnot and never to be read. I've I've read you the have those, vast you have majority those, of the comics. So, do you have those clamshells that I've seen? Um, you know, professional collectors sell and everything that uh, are both will keep the comic, but also it, it does make it easier to pop it open if you you know want to enjoy it beyond slabbing it. I have. It, most of the ones that I have up, I just have in like really thick archival mylars with the hats okay. behind them, okay. um, and that's that's because my wife actually came up with that. And I am married, you know. It's like I have two yes. kids, you know. So that's the other the other myth I'll dispel is a forty year old virgin, you know, kind of myth. But my wife is really strong supporter of it, and I couldn't have got this record without her because. One, she never nagged me about having my collection, and we've been married uh, 30 years now. And, That's great, man. Congratulations. That's wonderful. And, you know, she... From day one. She, it was, honey, if we're doing this, I got to tell you. Well, I've always read the comics. I mean, I started reading comics when I was eight. Right. And, you know, my first comic I bought off the rack was Amazing Spider-Man number 88 by Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. So is that a 12-center? It was a 15-center. It was a 15 center. Nice. What year? Um, that was 1970. Atta boy. Wow. Nice. And I started buying my own in 73, but go on. And I, I never stopped at all since. You know, I didn't and, go through the years where it's like, oh, I stopped reading them for 10 years and started again. I mean, I've, I've read them all the way through. So when I started going out with my wife, I was reading comics. And when we were dating, I was reading comics. And she never had a problem with it, which is, to me, that's what you want to do, right? <laughs> sure, exactly. No, that's excellent. Is uh, so? Does the uh, the collection go back to when you were eight, or did you really start keeping them at a later age? Oh uh, no, I I have everything. Well, when I was eight, I did crazy stuff with my comics. So that was eight, sure. Right? <laughs> you know, it's like we all did. My, hey, man, what are you talking about? Yeah. Go on, and, so, I'll, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you. Know, it's like I used to like my very first Spider Mans that I got. I would cut the Spider Man figures out of them. Yep, and kind of play with them like paper dolls because you know I yep. didn't have action figures or anything like right. that. It was like you know the poor man's color forms, if you remember Absolutely. color forms. Absolutely, um, you know. So I I did that. So I I ruined a lot of those comics. I have subsequently gone back and rebought those 
But, okay. you know, probably from around 72, 73 forward, you know, I have all, I didn't cut up every book I had, but, you know, no, I certainly get it. all my Spider-Mans because I like them the most. When, uh, when the DC explosion was happening and they would have rows of characters and they were full-bodied characters, and I believe those were all like Jose Luis Garcia Lopez uh, designs. I want to say that. Maybe they were Neil, but I think they were Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Um, yeah, they had like a full-figure Batman. They had a full-figure Superman. Green Lantern, I want to say it was a Gil Kane, and it was probably in the Indicia or whatever, like or in the uh, upper left-hand corner of the comic or whatever, or even the, wherever they would put the little figure, much like Marvel Comics did as well. Um, you know, yeah, I had all that stuff, and I, and I did the same thing because, like you said, yeah, no, that's – this was – you know, just the comics. And I mean, that's good that ultimately you were able to replace those and everything. I, but uh, yeah, I get it. I cut my Marvel value stamps. <laughs> sure. I had the Absolutely. whole set of 100. I got myself a Marvel value stamp book and I cut all the cut all the the stamps out and pasted them in the book. And uh, That's funny. I, I wonder both how many people have comics that would represent all 100 and also of how many different cut up uh, collections you might have seen over the yeah, years my my hulk 181 i cut the marvel value stamp ah oh no <laughs> yeah for, first wolverine yeah right? and that's the one i never i didn't when it was cheap i didn't go back and rebuy it so my ah, you know my hulk 181 is, is probably you know good minus or something because of that well, I, I got some like collecting kind of questions like that for you, but first uh, let's because I think you know you in your blog post um, you do have like the three things to keep in mind. You mentioned support, and it's very cool that yes, you mentioned the full support of your family, obviously because yeah, I mean obviously this is like an investment and also of space, which is another one of your concerns. Uh, that you know, no, if you have a studio apartment, probably not going to work out. You know, <laughs> and I understand unless you that. rent a storage space somewhere, right? Right, yeah, but you know, yeah, just to have it in your little apartment or whatever. And then you say too structure, and that's. I mean, I am interested in some of the things uh, that like have come out to help you. I was going to ask, even with the Guinness Book and stuff. So they do still print a Guinness Book of World Records. Is are the facts still online, or is that like? I mean, it's it's interesting how these companies that for years would stay in business because every year they would have like an annual and a new book. And I also wonder that with Overstreet, frankly. Um, because there's the collector's market and then there's, you know, just the comic Wednesday warrior buyers too. And I just don't know, I'm aware of like high end stuff, but when you uh, sell a new overstreet every year, do you buy your new overstreets every year? Yeah, I, I tend to buy the, uh, hero initiative version that they come out with at, uh, San Diego every year okay. with the okay. special hero initiative cover because, you know, I think. A portion of that goes back to the Hero Initiative, and plus I support the Hero Initiative and Comic Book Legal Defense Fund whenever I can anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, who's on the cover? Uh, this year, um, on that cover, it's The Spirit. Oh, that's excellent. Who drew it? Dave Johnson. Fantastic. Man, yeah, that doesn't suck. That's really cool. No, I love how they've recreated classic covers. I remember the Superboy Legion cover a couple years ago, and I forget who redid that. Yeah, they, for an example, they have very cool, like very. I mean, they've come up with three or four covers, and it's like I'm not going to buy, you know, the variant thing, right? I'm not going to buy three or four copies of the Overstreet. So it's just like I get one of them. It's like I pick the one I like best, and I do the same with the comics. You know, I I try to pick the one that I like the best, and that's the one I get. I understand. You know, Bob, I'm going to look up an email I got recently and make sure that I'm asking this right because someone had asked me, and as a collector, you might have the, the best answer. 
I'm I wonder like what do you use to really discover the true value of a comic because um I know for years Wizard had their price guide in the back and I'll be completely honest uh I, it smelled fishy, and I and I claim no uh, like other like hidden information that I knew it was fishy. But now that you see just how ridiculous I think the price guide at Wizard was, it's really tough to kind of you know. It just it leaves a bad taste in my mouth, frankly. And I, and, it, and it really and I'm saying this. This is all me. Saying yeah, it, this. It, it's it's kind of interesting the whole dollar and cents aspect of collecting because I'm you know the first question that people always ask me. How much is your collection worth? How much is your collection worth? What's your most valuable comic? All this kind of stuff. And I I just I always decline to answer that. My standard answer (laughs) is, you know, I'm not trying to delude myself into thinking I'm buying stocks or something here. You know, I buy comics because I love reading comics and I love the comic art form. I'm not I'm not buying them like they're stocks that I'm like, you know, buying okay. and selling. I never sell my comics. I, I don't buy and sell comics. I buy comics. My collection's like a Roach Motel from the old commercial, right? <laughs> comics go in and they never come out, you know? It's just I don't I have but are you I have these comics, right? I I don't get rid okay. of them. I have had duplicate comics over the years and I give away I've given away thousands and thousands of comics. When uh I had the one of the things I had to do for the Guinness when I got the initial record is I had to have a public event um where I had the comics on display and let people examine the collection. That was the day that I had the guys come in to audit it and validate the count and everything. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, I, when I was deduplicating the collection for that, because that's the other thing, you know, you can't have the duplicate comics in it. And the Guinness definition is also that a comic book is, um, sequential graphic storytelling, right? So, so what is in a comic book then? Would so be the what wouldn't be a comic book is like uh, official handbook of the Marvel universe. Interesting. Or Who's Who, or, you know, those index, Marvel Age, Marvel yeah, Age yeah. those index books that came, yeah. Wizard, okay. Wizard Magazine that you just mentioned, Amazing Heroes, Comic okay. Buyer's Guide, okay. you know, those uh, pinup magazines with the superheroines in swimsuits or what. Yeah, the summer specials you know, that Marvel used to Those are example. not sure. comics. So okay. in okay. order to deduplicate my collection to get a, a count, I had to create a separate field in my database that's non-comic, and I tagged all the titles that were not comics. And so when I dumped my comic database out to Excel to to do the count, because I send the Excel sheet to Guinness, um, I just sort it on the non-comic field, and I delete all those rows from the database. And then my database only writes out one row for each book. So even if I've got, you know, four copies of something, it only goes to one row. So then I do a count of the rows. That way I'm not counting multiple copies. I have only unique separate ones. It's funny because I actually found when I did the initial thing, I went from a count within the database of something close to 110,000 down to 89,000. On the very okay. first time I did it, because it okay, took out sure. duplicates and it took out things that weren't comics. Got um, it. So it's like, wow, you know, that's that's quite a lot. Um, since then, I now never count that stuff. So it, you sure. know, it's just been kind of going up and up. 
Um, I've actually, I broke my 89,000 record when I did the 94, and then I just broke my record for the third, the second break, but it's the third time I set it with the 101, 822. Um, so when's the last, how long of a period of time between when you counted for the 94 and then for the... The 94 the was verified on May 1st, 2014, and the okay. 101, 822 was counted as of August 1st, so only uh, five days ago. Wow crazy as we're recording this five days yeah. ago yeah that's as we're recording right. this and yeah it's, it's okay. actually interesting because i was able to go a little quicker this time because i got assigned to the same guy who had verified my collection before so he was used to seeing all the stuff plus i'm very detailed in what i send him i sent all the pictures and i sent the spreadsheet and i sent a very detailed accounting of what i've added since the last time with all kinds of documentation and everything so it was fairly so just, easy for him to update my my count. So in just over a year, you've added another seven thousand, or this is just you know a little better organization on your part, and you're you know hey wait there's more. A little of both. I went a little okay. nuts at the back half of last year, just buying <laughs> lots of back issues and filling in stuff. Okay. And also this time, I. Uh, I entered into the database all my unread comics because normally, just as a you know matter of course, I read my comics, I get the comics, and I read them. And once I read them, I throw them into a long box. When the long box okay. is full, alphabetize that long box and uh, enter them into the database. So at any point in time, I might have you know I have some number of comics that I haven't read yet that are not in the database and wouldn't be counted. This time what I did was I took all my comics that I hadn't read yet that I have I have these little drawer boxes that I've got sure. all my to read comics in. Absolutely. And I former sponsor yeah. of Word Balloon. I know the drawer box people very well. And They're good men. I uh I counted all I entered all those into the database this time before I uh I did it plus I went through and I added in a lot of my uh Marvel Masterworks and you know, other kinds of collected editions. A collected edition will count as one comic. Okay. Not as what it contains, but it's within the covers of, you know, one set okay. of covers, so it counts as one comic. But still, I I've got several hundred, you know, collected editions on the shelves. So those, wow. I just put a box of shelf, you know, um, in the box field. And the to-read comics, I just put in the box field to-read and so those came out, you know, in the count. So it okay. just it I had like five hundred and fifty some odd comics to be read, so I'm a little bit behind. I think I had it in my blog how many I, I need to read. Do you have uh, uh do you do you collect uh, like you know, this is like talking to Sam Beckett from Quantum Leap, he could only leap within his lifetime. Do you only have from when he started collecting to the present? How far beyond like before your time? Do you have golden age comics? Do you have early silver age comics from the from the fifties? Um I'm glad you asked that. Um so on Golden Age I have a few. I don't have a lot of Golden Age stuff. There are certain things that I've I've collected back. Um, I've collected some Atomic Age stuff, like I've been collecting some EC comics, especially okay. the New Direction stuff because they're a little bit cheaper. <laughs> you know, the, the, okay. the other stuff I got a bunch. Yeah, of the post. Yeah. The, the New Direction was yeah. the post Wortham right. comic books that were their attempt to clean up before yeah. they stopped uh, stopped doing. So, that. 
you know, piracy and MD and yep. extra and all those. I've, I've got okay. a bunch of those. I also collected a bunch of the Hillman Airboy comics. Awesome. Um, I, I was collecting a lot of the um, Golden Age Ghost Rider. It was called uh, Knight Rider back then. Yes. Or actually, no, he was Ghost Rider, and then he became Knight Rider, and then he was back to Ghost Rider. Anyway, yeah, you know, the, the Western the, guy with the white. Right, the West, yeah, the Western Ghost Rider. Right. So I've the, got the Dick Ayers. You know, Dick Ayers. From, that yeah, Ghost Dick Rider. Ayers. And, uh, you know, I've got him. He's, he was in a lot of comics back in the Gold yeah, Age. He was. So, Very prolific guy. Absolutely, man. Um, uh, like Bobby Benson's B Bar B Ranch, you know, has got. Sure, that was a radio show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ghost Rider stories, and I got a couple issues of that. And, you know, so I've got Great. a handful of them. Um, do you uh, do you like what's what's your oldest comic book? My oldest comic book is Detective Number Seventy Five. Okay, and what year was that? Uh, you're going to stump me on that one, unless I went and got it. It's early forties. Okay, all right. I'm going to look it up. Detective Seventy Five. Let's uh, we, we'll try and get that number for you. We'll try and get that date for you. Um, that's cool. And are you a completist? Do you need to like? I mean, how do you collect? I mean, obviously the the stuff you're reading currently is one thing, but as far as Older comics, do you like, are there, like, I've got to have every Green Lantern, um, I, stuff like that? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, as far as that goes, on the Comic Spectrum site, um, if you go there, there is a uh, a page that I got set up that's a Bob's Countdown to Complete. There's a Bob's Blog menu on the left, Okay, and that pulls out into a whole bunch of stuff. Like, I've got my pull list, so every month I put, like, all the comics I'm buying on there. And uh, I got pictures of my comic room and, you know, other things like that. I got a page about the Guinness World Record. I've got the Pop Cult online podcasts on there. Um, and then I've got one called Countdown to Complete. And on Countdown to Complete, I talk about completing my Silver Age superhero stuff. So I'm down to the point where I only need, at this point, um, 70 Marvel comics. Interesting. Um, it's twenty six. It's forty four X Men comics because I was never, I was not primarily an X Men fan. Forty four X Men books and then twenty six of everything else. Interesting. So I'm only wow. missing one issue of Avengers. I'm missing five issues of FF. Um, I'm missing those wow. first six issues of Hulk. Six wow. issues of Journey into Mystery. I'm only missing Sergeant Fury number one. Wow. Um, I'm missing three <laughs> issues of Strange Tales um, with cool. the torch and or right. Doctor Strange in them. Three, right. three, three tales of suspense, and I'm missing Tales to Astonish 27, which is the first Hank Pym, not in costume, the man in the anthill. I have all of the Ant-Man appearances where he's in costume. That's excellent, man. So, Got it. I'm, and I'm kicking myself because I do remember that Marvel premiere with Scott Lang's first appearance, and I absolutely bought it. Yeah, so I have all that. Yeah, you're like, yeah, whatever. That's all, that's all. <laughs> but, and then on DC, I've got my DC countdown, too, and I'm, I'm missing a bunch more DC stuff because DC Silver goes back to, like, you know, like 1950, what is it, 56 or so when Showcase See, I always get it wrong. Out. Yeah, I always, I always get it wrong. I always say 54, but, yeah, it's 56. Showcase 4, rather. I mean, I'm missing 10. But, but also, I think 54, I'm yeah. missing 10 flashes, so I'm okay. missing his uh, – four showcase appearances, and then I'm missing six issues of Flash. I'm only missing one issue of Green Lantern. Crazy. I'm missing... You have showcases at 22 yeah, with the first yeah, Lantern? Yeah. Okay. I've got, wow. I've got yeah. all those. Um, wow. And you got showcase four? 
I don't have Showcase Four. I don't have okay. I don't have any of the Flash. So I, on Showcase, showcase. I don't have um, the Flash. He was in uh, four, eight, thirteen, and fourteen. So the first four okay. appearances of the Flash, I don't have. Okay. And then I don't have one hundred five, one hundred six, one hundred seven, and then one ten, one twelve, and one thirteen. So it's like. Those are hard because those are all the really, you know, very earliest Flash stuff. Sure. And the only Green Lantern I don't have is number seven, which is the first Sinestro. Crazy. But I have all the showcase appearances. I have every issue of Justice League, including the three issues from Brave and the Bold. I've got all of the Adam, including his showcase appearances, all of Hawkman, including his Brave and Bold, and Mystery into Space appearances. and. Metal Man and Metamorpho and Teen Titans, all of that stuff I've got. Oh, man, I bet you got a ton of my favorite cover artists from the 60s and early 70s, Nick Cardi. Yeah, I love Nick. All the- I love oh. One of my favorite Teen Titans covers of all time was, a, I think it was a Nick Cardi cover. Um, so there's a giant book that they're going sure. through. You know that one? Yep. yep. Hilarious. No, that's fantastic, man. And it, you said, did you say Detective 77? 75. Seventy-five. Should have like the like a robber baron or something on the cover. Uh, There it is, and it was um, what year? It was forty-three. You're right, and it is the robber baron is your uh, is your lead. Yes, and there he is with a uh, top hat and uh, tails and a cape. And uh, what month was that? Was May of nineteen forty-three? Whitney Ellsworth still the executive editor back then. Bob Kane, the cover artist, supposedly, but it looks like a Shelley Moldoff uh, kind of cover to me. I don't know what you think. Yeah, it's uh, Bob Kane's signature on it. Right, but yeah, I'm guessing that, that I'm guessing that's the case. And Jack Burnley was the interior uh, artist with George Russo's uh, inks and letters. Very cool. Whitney Ellsworth, of course, uh, just a few years away of him going to Hollywood and producing the Superman show. Right there, you go. So I'm I am very big on Silver Age. I am a little sketchier on the Golden Age, although I have okay. all the I have all the DC archives that they put out. Sure. Um, so you know, getting getting a hold of the Golden Age, you know, a lot of the key Golden Age stories I have in in archive format. So I've I've read it, but just as far as collecting it, uh, I was all you know a child of the Bronze Age. I sure. have a theory about that. I was going to ask, because let me ask a question first, and you tell me what your thing is, because I'm guessing, much like myself, we love Golden Age and Silver Age comics before our time because they were in those 80-page giants, those 100-page spectaculars, and we got to appreciate that stuff at the right age because we were those 10-year-old kids reading that stuff just like 10-year-old kids from the 40s. So we weren't like, you know, like whatever. The art was the art and the stories were simple, but all the stories were simple. So or simpler. You know what I mean? So that's that's my theory. And that's why I love stuff older than me and have this appreciation for the history that I think, because, again, I was exposed to it at that age. So please, you tell me your theory. I I agree with that. (laughs) I but I as far as wanting to collect, I have I have a slightly alternate theory to that, that. People like to collect from when they started reading up, but then they go like kind of one age or era back. And Only they one. Get, well, they get like – and not, that's not universal, right? But I've talked well, to a lot of people, me, yeah. 
And, you know, it's like I started reading in the Bronze Age, so I'm right. absolutely in love with the Silver Age, and I love, you know, I'm trying to get complete sets of all the Silver Age, and I like the Golden Age, but it's a little more unobtainable for me. Sure. And then I, you know, like people who started collecting in like the 80s or 90s, you know, they're they're starting to have this, even now, they're starting to have this fascination with the Bronze Age, more so than the Silver Age, and you're starting to see a lot of movement on a lot of this Bronze Age stuff, because that was that one age right before them. Sure. Well, now that's interesting, because I was wondering if, with the collapse of the collector's market in the 90s, if it made a lot of comics more affordable, because I certainly see that just on my own as I'm going through dollar bins, because the only stuff that really interests me is if I can get reader copies of Silver and Bronze Age books... I'm happy because I, for me, it is the ads for Skittlepool and the Aurora models and the Caps Hobby Corner or whatever it was called or Super Turtle like one page strips. It's stuff like that that absolutely just cracks me up and I immediately am a child again and I love those. So for me, it's just it's just the the you know the experience of it. But like, I know I've seen books that look like they've been marked down. I bought a bunch of Red Rider Dell. Western comics because I loved how beautifully painted they were, and they were you know marked down to eight bucks, and it, these were 1950s comics and they were in great shape. But I, I you know it just seems to me that maybe at one time they were like twenty dollars and now all of a sudden they're only eight dollars. Yeah, I, I think that I have I've done the same thing. It's like if I find some of that older stuff like Dell Comics or um, Gold Key or other kind of comics that are not that expensive. I will definitely pick them up, especially if they're, you know, fairly sharp condition. But it's it's a little tough for me because, you know, where I'm willing to pay a decent amount for, like, the Silver Age books to complete my runs, I, I'm i not going to go and drop, you know, 500 bucks on some, you know, one of a hundred different Western comics that I'm missing or romance comics or something like that sure. that I don't have. Um, I can appreciate that. And that's, you know, that's the one part I don't have a really deep collection of, you know, my Marvel stuff that is not missing and that I'm not counting in my Silver Age stuff is, you know, like Kid Colt and Two Gun Kid and and that kind of stuff. You know, the reprints that they were doing in the in the 60s and 70s, sure. the older stuff. I I'm missing hundreds of those because those okay. are still a little pricey and it's like I can't see getting <laughs> You know, and well, romance was, comics too, they're tough because, boy, they're in general much more beat up than, than the superhero well, that, comics. Well, I could kind of see them because, yeah, if anything was probably thrown away of even, of even that stuff that collectors, you know, might have their pick of what they could choose, I'm guessing that it was the romance stuff and the weird, some of the other stuff that was neglected and probably is a bit rarer. Or even in your case, as you said, those first six issues of Hulk, because it was a failure and it, can't, it was canceled. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know how many younger listeners realize that, yeah, like the Hulk bombed when it first came out. And it really did require him, you know, sticking around and being a bad guy in, in Fantastic Four and the Avengers after after he left the Avengers that like that kind of sustained his existence in the Marvel U before they kind of reintroduced him or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you know, when he came back in Tales to Astonish, you know, he had a decent run there. Um, oh, sure. For like 30 or so issues. Oh, yeah. 
Um, but but I do know initially, it, like I mean, I assume because again, it was only six issues and they canceled it. So I assume oh, it was it, it was absolutely it just it, it didn't take off, you know, it, like the other one. Sure, took time. Yeah, it took time. But then yeah, I know, like I remember Stan saying, the college kids love the Hulk, and it's like, all right. <laughs> well, eventually, you know, because by the time Marvel was getting seen by the college kids, it wasn't that first six months. You know, this was sure. this was years later when you know it was yeah, like two or three years you know, later. Yeah, the tales to astonish and tales of suspense eras. When that sure, and, that, and also they had that lousy period when Independent News, DC's distributor, was the only game in town. They lost their distributorship, and that's why uh, you had them, you know, Tales of Suspense had the two features, Tales to Astonish had the two features. Yeah, absolutely. But they had that lid on how many comics that they could distribute, and it was when that was lifted that they just, you know, exploded, exploded. and they just, okay... You know, Captain America is picking up the numbering from Tales of Suspense, and Iron Man got a new number one, and Hulk picked up the Tales to Astonish, and Submariner got his own new number one, and, you know, on and on. It just, it was a, you know, Strange Tales, same kind of thing. You know, Doctor Strange got his, his own book, and S.H.I.E.L.D. got its own book. So what is what is your Great White Whale that you're still, like, searching for? What is it like if you, you know... Could find it at the right price. That's the book you right, really now, want right now. Well, my it yeah. was Amazing Fantasy yeah. fifteen for the longest time, um, but I, you, I bought yeah, that well, like back like two years ago. No, no, when just, did you just uh, last December I got a hold of it. Oh, well, okay, because I know I remember seeing you talk about that on Facebook. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. So my is it a, like what kind of grade? Uh, it is. Uh, let me look over. I should know this. It's a uh, five point or six point oh. Sorry. Okay. All right. That's fine. There you go. I don't know. Is that fair? What is that considered fair? No, that's uh, that's fine. But it's oh, finance. Hey, all right. See, I don't know. I know, Dick. It's, all right. uh, <laughs> it's got slight professional restoration, uh, but it's a Stanley Signature Series. Oh, fantastic! So, what does that mean? <laughs> it means that Stan signed. It's a CGC book. It's like the one. It's I broke my own rule, but I, I wrote a whole blog about it. You know, it's like <laughs> finding my Grail and. You know, that's the one thing where, you know, in general, I'm not big on CGC books. I've cracked a lot of things out of CGC slabs, but that is like the most key Silver Age book that there is. And the one way I could get my wife to uh, green light the the cash that that thing cost me was getting it CGC'd because that's a very liquid book. Sure. And And I'm sorry, I don't remember if you said it earlier, FF number one? FF number one is my current Grail book. Okay, wow, that would be yeah, the one that Jesus. I would want to get. You know, now. Do you have uh, the first Doctor Doom? Um, I do not. That is another what you, one that what, I'm. Okay. FF, what are your? I'm missing. Yeah. yeah well, how many? Um, I'm missing number one, number okay. four, which is the first Silver Age Submariner, number five, yes. which is the first Doctor Doom. Number okay. 12, which is the Thing versus the Hulk for the first time. Awesome. Yeah, and number yeah. 25 was an Avengers guest appearance. That one would be the easiest of them. And really, the ones that I'm missing are the ones that are the, you know, sure. the expensive, hard-to-get ones. Is number 12 of the FF, is that where like there's like a, a cave or whatever, and uh, yep. Hulk's waiting behind a wall or whatever? Yep. That's it. Good stuff, man. Oh, yeah. No, I remember it well. I, there you go. That's, yeah. Well, and again, you've got your collected editions. But that's... That's okay, man. I, I think that's cool. I um, 
I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm impressed, and I knew you had a big collection, but yeah, that's that's fantastic, and also it's good to have it legitimized by by Guinness Book, so that's that's really really neat. Man. So the count the count is funny because, like I was saying before, you know, you can't count the duplicates and all that. So I put this thing out on Facebook today, and one of the guys that I bought a lot of comics from over the years he used to have a store. You know, he he chimes in and he says, "Oh yeah, I've got you know over three hundred thousand comic books." And, you know, so I'm like, well, yeah, but, you know, you're a store. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm not a store anymore. I stopped selling comics in 2012, and all the stuff I had, that just converted, and that's my collection now. Okay. And I said, well, okay, well, what about duplicates? And he said, well, I don't know, you know, and I sent him the definition. He said, well, let me right. let me uh, go and deduplicate this and come back and tell you how many comics I have by that. And then he came back and he had forty eight thousand and some comics. There you go. Took all the duplicates out of it. So, well, hey man, yeah, exactly. You know, basically, so. you know, uh, one in six, <laughs> a little less. <laughs> well, these things happen, but it's good. That's you know, that's right. the kind of thing, though. It's like when you're a store. If you think about it, most of the stock, because you know, stores they get a lot of these comics a lot of times just by buying up collections of people. Well, sure. All those people they're buying collections of, they've got the same kind of stuff. They've got Marvel and DC right. comics between, you know, year X and year Y. You know, I'm guessing there's just tremendous amounts of comics between like maybe 1985 and 2010. That I'm nodding. Uh, yes, they're all Absolutely. just you know lots of those comics are around. Sure. So when you take all the duplicates out, you know that it. it it doesn't leave as many unique books. And he also said to me, yeah, but, you know, also, I just bought most of those in bulk, and they were all entered into the database by employees, and I don't have that much of a connection to them, you know. So he said, he told me, you're the master of that, because, you know, I bought all my comics pretty much one by one as a as a fan, as a collector, right? I, I'm not buying collections from people. You know, I don't. And that's another way to get comics really cheap. If you're a store, you know, that has a collection on the side, you know, you're the store owner, well, they'll buy a whole collection off of somebody for pennies on the dollar. Sure. And cherry pick out, you know, the hundred comics out of that collection that they don't have in their personal collection. And yep. Those are essentially free to them. Sure. You know, it's just. I get it. I have, oh, to, I have to buy because <laughs> I Right. One at a time. Yeah. Absolutely, man. No, no. I, I appreciate that. Are you part of any sort of collector's club or anything like that, that, you know, you can go and, well, I, you know, I need a Sergeant Fury 1. Well, I got a, you know, Ghost Rider 6. Let's swap or whatever. Uh, not that way because I don't ever trade or sell okay. anything. So it's not okay. anything that I would be, you know, doing that. I Other than just like anybody, I buy things on eBay. I use mycomicshop.com right. a lot. I use okay. Comic Collector Live a lot. Um, I have a lot of the primary uh, back issue places I use. What is uh, Comic Collector Live? So tell me what Comic Collector Live sure, is. Sure, it's, it's, it's a website. They also have Comic Collector software. It's not the software I use, but um, they're a collection software that also has a selling site associated with it. And there's um, hundreds of storefronts on Comic Collector Live. So if you go to Comic Collector Live 
and enter books that you're looking for into a want list, which I have a want list on there that's you know probably about five or six thousand comics, uh, <laughs> you know, just stuff that I don't have, and you know, weird indie stuff, and you know, just kind of filler on some of the stuff that I don't have, and I can go and go to one of those shops and just say what's on my want list and it'll it'll sort and give me a view of the stuff that that seller has that's on my want list then I can look at it and say okay well this seller has free shipping if you spend $30 does he have $30 worth of stuff that I want to get sure. if so then I'll buy that $30 of stuff and get free shipping or I might go to some guy that you know you buy 30 comic books you get free shipping or some guy I might buy it just you know he wants six dollars for shipping but he has some stuff that i've been looking for for a really long time so i don't want to pay that um similar to that um, comic base has a site like that called atomic avenue um you know i use the comic base software and you can like automatically hook it up where um the you can mark comics in your collection i want to sell this so again there's hundreds of guys on there that are selling comics and you can go on and you can search for things and it lets you kind of reach out to a very wide base of people who are selling comics um, that you might be looking for. So it's, that's kind of like a, a collector's club. And then, of course, I use e- eBay as, you know, as sure. a source for, uh, for finding stuff. And my favorite site is mycomicshop.com, uh, operated by Lone Star Comics down in mm-hmm. Texas by Buddy Saunders. And that site I just... I really like their grading is very much in sync with my grading. Grading is very subjective, right, when you grade comic books. And especially for me, because I'm not really hardcore on wanting everything to be pristine mint condition. Right, you're happy with you're happy with a reader copy or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I collect them. I mean, so I like that whole reader copy thing. You know, it's like, well, you know, if it's like a 60s comic, I'm fine with having it in very good condition, you know. Sure. That's collectible to me because it's the right very good condition, though, because some people will call something very good that I personally, and I think like the, uh, if you ever, have you ever seen the uh, Overstreet Guide, the pictorial guide that they put out for a comic grading? I'm aware of it. I haven't seen it in a long it's, time. It's Go very ahead. cool because it's got pictures at all the different numerical grades, and it kind of describes defects and stuff. And there's a section at the back where they'll have the same comic book. I mean, one of the editions, it was Amazing Spider-Man 50, the uh, Spider-Man No More cover. Uh-huh. And it was that sure. same cover in, like, 20 different grades. And you wow. see that same cover with, like, the defects adding in and, you know, like, this one's got the staples messed up or it's got the Marvel chipping or whatever. Um, but, you know, you look at that and it's – some people will call a book very good and that's not my very good because they they don't go by the – the fact right. that, you know, there's a whole bunch of conditions that are allowable or defects, rather, that are allowable in any grade, but you can't have every single one of those stacked on top of each other in that grade. You know, it's like if you have every one of those defects, it will actually knock it down another, you know, half grade to a grade because it's, you know, there's maybe 20 defects, and if you have five of them, you're okay in that grade. But if you have all 20 of them, then that's a problem. 
Sure. Do you have friends that are collectors and you're kind of like the mechanic that goes with someone when they're going to buy a car and you kind of look over a book for on someone's behalf and go, all right, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, and this is wrong. So, yeah, they're kind of they're jerking you around at this price I'm, or whatever. I'm kind of like medium on that. I actually have friends that <laughs> – I have friends that I have do that for me when I'm buying a bit good because I Excellent. I know some guys who are a lot more hardcore about grading than I am that I trust that you know when I'll buy a book I'll like send them pictures and stuff and say hey look at these but I can I can give advice about where to go and I'm I'm kind of better than the average guy but I'm not like the supreme expert cuz you know frankly okay. for me I can't tell the difference between a 9.4 and a 9.8 comic book. You know, it's just like, sure, they both look really darn good to me. But there are guys, you know, up there because I don't collect up in that realm. You know, I can I can tell you the difference between a, you know, 3.5 and a 4.5 and a 4.0 and that kind of stuff. At least what my opinion is on those. And I'm right. No, I'm a little tougher grader than some people. And I well, that's what. You know, That's what people would want, obviously. And I have, yeah. I've had disagreements with sellers before about that. You know, they'll say, "Well, I talked to X person, and they're just fine with the grade." And I'm like, "Well, you know, I, I will choose not to buy this. You're fine grading it the way that you do. I'm just not going to buy from you." <laughs> you know? No, I understand. And you know, I have sellers that I won't buy from because I don't agree with their grading. Um, but my comic shop, I, on the old stuff that they actually look at. I am very, very happy with their grading, and I think that they actually follow a good credo, which is they undergrade a little bit, you know, so that the customer will be happy with it. Are you – what what did you think of uh, the programming this year at uh, San Diego in terms of comic history? And really the panels – because that's another thing I know you do at Comic Spectrum, and you were really nice uh, two years ago uh, to include me on your your, best panels I saw at Comic-Con. And uh, I had the the that lost uh, Comic Con uh, film. Oh yeah, that I showed. That was that uh, was absolutely fabulous. I I went this year to twenty seven panels at Comic Con. Nice, nice. That was an all time high for me. And just I made a point of going to, you know, all different panels. I did a blog about it. You know, that was my top ten for this year. Uh huh. Um, I know I had Arlen Schumer on uh, the the Irish Schnepp, uh panel in particular I, I had him on I ran into him over the weekend and he was you know like you got to see this panel like you're not going to believe you know this guy and everything and, I, and I've had Iran or rather I have had Arlen on to talk about it just a couple episodes ago and uh, no it was fascinating and I know that was one of your I think I might have been your number one well now this year my number one was, was the one? March panel with Congressman John Lewis oh of course it was oh, yes that's right wow. I remember yes Arlen told me that, that yeah was so so good uh, it's awesome that he's been coming the last couple of years, and and also to recreate his his march across yeah. the bridge and everything. That's just fantastic. It was awesome, and he's just like his when he got up and he was talking. I mean, he talked, and his aide Andrew Aiden, who wrote it with him, talked, uh-huh. and Nate Powell talked, and I had tears in my eyes several times just listening to these guys talk. Um, and the stories that they're telling, it was just very moving and that doesn't happen a lot, you know, so that had to get number one for me. Number two for me was, uh, the lost Jack Kirby interview by Ray Zone. Did you see that one? No. So was that, uh, like that was, uh, was that video or was it audio? It was video. There was in the 1980s in, in like 1980s 
Ray Zone had this cable access show in Santa Monica. Yeah. Yep. And in 84, he interviewed Jack Kirby. And it was broadcast one time in late 1984 on cable access TV in Santa Monica. So it was probably seen by 100 people or something, right? And Sure. Yeah. And then it was just in his garage since then. And somebody found it, and they showed it at Comic-Con this year. And there were probably 75 or 100 people in the room, so it like doubled the number of people on Earth that have seen this interview. <laughs> but it was it was great, you know. He's Is he, he's talking he to Jack, and you know they're just talking, and you know just seeing Jack. Talk, I mean, the production values. I mean, this was a cable access show. It was like crazy. I mean, oh, the I'm production sure out. the yeah. production values were just terrible. It was sure, but the content overcame. The, of course. Uh, the the production values of this show that probably had a budget of 50 bucks or something. You know? No question, man. No, I've worked in those kinds of cable access studios, believe me, for like 20 years. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, no, it's very rudimentary, but that's okay. I mean, um, is he going to is he going to release that as a DVD? I, I, like that? I don't I don't know. Uh, OK, because, you know, my thing was literally a library copy right. that I found. Right. Actually, and it really wasn't even me. My buddy Doug Claba, the, the, the great artist, uh, no, he's that, the one who found That was so and, good. <laughs> oh, it was fascinating. Well, and that's the thing, and I think between not only cable, cable access, oh, God, um, and now I'm forgetting Tony, um, he used to write Simpsons comics, Italian dude. And I can't remember, he had a webcomic about uh, a superhero frat house. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know. Tony, D, D, Digital, you know, he had Digirayamo. Yep, thank you. Very good. Exactly. Close enough. And forgive us, Tony, and yeah. we'll, if there were sorry, Magnum name. But uh, I know he had a show in the '90s that was on public access. And um, you think of the various local news three minutes that they might get of like a local artist and stuff. I know that some of the old EC guys, some of the original EC guys were, you know, interviewed that way. And the one that I always remember that was even cited in Sean Howe's Marvel book, the audio of the the one radio show when it was uh, Jack Kirby's birthday, and they surprised him by having Stan Lee come on, and you literally hear Kirby deflate when Jack when 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 stands on because there's still that that animosity on Jack's part between them and it's uh it's sad it really it's kind of heartbreaking and stuff but it's very honest and it's on YouTube people can find it if they look for Jack Kirby interview um uh, you can you can find it but yeah man it's uh and then of course too and I bet you've got that uh blu-ray or I don't yeah I think it was a blu-ray the DVD uh the uh, the Eisner documentary DVD yeah. That uh, John Morrow uh, was it John who put it? No, John, uh, John Clark put it or John Cook put it out. Comic book artist John Cook and um, God, the shop talk, uh, you know, conversations that Eisner had and stuff um, that are collected, of course, in his shop talk book. But you hear those original things. It's that's that's great. I mean, that that is just such gold. And I mean, it's one of the reasons, honestly, not that I'm doing this for, for in any altruistic way, but it is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm glad I do Word Balloon and that that database is there and I've got you know my copies and stuff because I think it's important to get the record straight and get it from people. And you know, there's so that's awesome. I, I don't mean to dwell on that. But I just really think that's like something that's exceptional that uh, I hope. Is more widely distributed, and I, you know, again, if uh, if they if he owns that, you know, outright and stuff, I, I hope he uh, I hope he puts it out there. Yeah, that's that's what I like about comic any comic con, and you know, I will say that San Diego 
tends to have more of that type of, of panel than any other con, yep. with the exception of WonderCon, which is run by the same people. Right. You know, it's just they have a lot of creator-focused and comic-focused. And, you know, the funny thing is, is I went to 27 panels at Comic-Con. I didn't stand in any lines uh, yep. because I went I to agree. all comic book panels, except yep. I had to stand in a line before the Art of the Cover panel that uh, Mark Evanier does every year because there was a children's hospital panel beforehand that the room was packed of people wanting to see the whatever actors are on that show. Sure, sure. Um, and <laughs> yeah, the, it's adult swim. You know, sure, it's absolutely. just I ran ironically ran into one of the stars at Children's Hospital. Rob Cordry was yeah. staying at my hotel, and I ran into him in the lobby, which was cool. So that was one of my celebrity moments. I didn't go to his panel. Interestingly, but, like I went to the Jim Steranko panel. Okay. And, um, I went last year. I didn't go this year. Steranko, you know, he it's funny. He makes an entrance, right? He's like, of course, he, he was outside. And he walks in like five minutes after the start of the panel because he was like waiting for the guy to introduce him. And then he comes in, you know, to the accolades of the crowd. Who introduced him? Was it uh, – it wasn't uh, Vanguard? It wasn't uh... – I forget who the guy was who was moderating the panel. Okay, go on. Not somebody that I knew. But okay, um, I, he was a big Steranko fan. But okay, the funny part was is a little bit into the thing Steranko says – and he tells he's telling some like totally random off the wall anecdotes that had nothing to do with comics. He's talking about like some dentist in Hollywood and you know just like just off the wall kind of stuff. Crazy like, stories, stuff about movies. And it's like sure. you know some crazy movie that no one in the room had ever heard of. You know, and you know what else this guy that you never heard of directed and nobody's saying anything. You know, it's just like. <laughs> but then he says, "Hey, anybody want to hear the story about how?" I stopped working for Marvel Comics, and everyone's like, yeah. And he's like, well, you know, you know how Stan Lee's always this smiling guy, and he's like, just comes off as the nicest old man in the world, and he's just like really pleasant whenever you see him, and he's waving and smiling, and everyone's like, yeah. And you're kind of expecting, he's, you think he's setting you up to say, yeah, but he's a real jerk. He's, he's a bastard. Yeah, he's, a, he's a bastard when you see him. <laughs> But he doesn't do that. He switches. He's like, you know, but that's how Stan really is. <laughs> He's like, in all the times I knew Stan, I never saw him yell at somebody. I never saw him get mad at anybody. He was always everybody's. He was always very pleasant. And he went on, you know, and the reason he left ultimately was because he did that story in the Tower of Shadows. And, yes. you know, he spent a lot of time getting it just so. And he went and he told Stan, you know, it's like, if you change anything in this story, I'm going to quit. And Stan's like, well, you know, I'm the editor. If I need to change something, you know, for the book, I I will have to change it. And Jim's like, well, you, know, you can do that, but I'm going to quit if you do. <laughs> and then Stan changed something and he stopped working for Marvel. So sure. No, I <laughs> understand. Story, but, you know, it's just but he wasn't like Stan wasn't like lording it over him or anything. He just like he said, Stan was just nice. And that kind of. <laughs> I think that goes along with, you know, like Stan, nowadays, you can't get near Stan. He just has this entourage of people oh, that yeah. are meant to keep people the heck away from Stan well, Lee. And in, in slight fairness, too, he is 92 no, no, or 93, but, but so I mean, he is point frail. is, is that he is so nice that if people come near Stan and ask him for something, he won't say no. You know, right. he'll just stop and sign autographs sure. and stuff. Sure, sure. It was funny because 
um, I don't know if you knew this, like, you know that big 75 years of Marvel Comics book that Toshin put out? Yes. So I I was helping Toshin, helping in the the least amount of sense, which was I provided a lot of the comics that they photographed. Um, for that Fantastic. Book, probably because they were producing it out of Beverly Hills, and I'm down here in Mission Viejo, which is about, you know, an hour, hour and a half south of their office. So they okay. just kept sending me lists of comics and say, do you have these comics? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so they'd send an intern down to my house, and he'd pick a couple of long boxes of comics and take them away for a week or two. They'd photograph them, and then they'd bring them back. Very so cool. about half the comics in that book are comics from my collect pictures of interiors and exteriors are from my collection. Um, and I got credited in the book. And when they did the signing up at the Toshin store in Beverly Hills – I got invited to come up because Stan and Roy were there autographing the book. So, Fantastic. you know, they comped me a couple of copies of the book. and Outstanding. So I would hope so. I, sure. I What's went up and, you know, it's funny because, you know, they're like, you know, don't look Stan in the eye. And don't, you know, like, don't engage <laughs> you because they know that if you're going to. But when I got up there, the, 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 um, the guy, Josh Baker, who, uh, who put the book together. The, the editing and art direction for the book. He actually okay. won an Eisner this year for the uh, Little Nemo book that Toshin did. Oh, fantastic, sure. Um, but he didn't win for the Marvel book because the third volume of that Alex Toth series, which is absolutely fabulous from IDW, oh, yeah. won oh, yeah. again. You know, all three yeah. volumes of that Alex Toth book sure. um, all won Eisners. But it was too bad because I would have loved to have had the book that I contributed, you know, the, the picture sure. to have on Eisner. But anyway. Absolutely. So when I got up, Josh, because, you know, I had been told, oh, don't talk to Stan. Josh says to Stan and Roy, hey, Stan and Roy, this guy's the guy who, you know, contributed the comics and he has the Guinness record and, you know, all this kind of. And then Stan's like, oh, and he started talking to me. And boy, did I get the stink eye from uh, Stan's handler. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Screw those people. God damn, man. I can't. Yeah, I understand. That, that's and I, you know, I got like, you know, like, yeah, I'm 30 seconds or a minute of Stan and Roy, but it was fun. You know, that's I went awesome. up with some friends and, you know, we we got our books signed and uh, I don't know. We went out to dinner afterwards and that's oh, you went out to dinner with who? Oh, just my friends that I went up. Oh, I see. Okay. Stan or anything. I thought I was going to say, well, you know, I was going to ask. I wish. I wish. <laughs> I, mentioning mentioning Storenko, I don't think I told my, my this year's Storenko story because through my friend Doug Claba, who found that 70s uh, lost uh, comic book documentary, um, I've, I've gotten to, you know, hang out a couple times in Jim's presence. No more than any other fan uh, would if they were hanging around his table at a con or uh, he was at a pulp convention and he told me why how I quit Marvel's story there with a bunch of his original shadow cover paintings of his paperbacks. And um, it was you know, just a great time and hanging out and stuff. So that was nine years ago, and I've known him since. And, it, you know, he never remembers me, but I always mention yeah. <laughs> Doug's name as an icebreaker, and then he'll talk to me and stuff. And this year I had enough extra money that two prints I've always wanted of his were one of his his black and white ink piece that he did for the National Sus- uh, Cartoonist Society, and it's uh, his character Chandler from uh, that book Red Tide, or Chandler uh-huh. was originally called Chandler, as you know, back in the 70s. I'm sure that's part of your collection. 
yeah. It, does that have, is that the one that has like the blinds or something and it's like yep, a desk? And, and, yeah. yeah. Oh, are you saying the print itself? Yes. Yeah. The, the print itself, yeah. It's a one, as he says, it's a one page story. And the other print I, I got from was the Indiana Jones, his classic Indiana Jones painting. The conceptual uh-huh, art, uh-huh. To, you know, that, that I'm saying this for the listeners, the conceptual art that uh, Spielberg and Lucas requested because all they had was the name and that they wanted a character that wore Humphrey Bogart's hat from the Treasure of Sierra Madre and a uh, pilot's kind of bomber jacket. And that was, that was the only two things they gave him. And otherwise, he came up with the look. And if you see the painting, you know, you, I don't think I've ever seen it. that. You should send, oh, me a, send me a JPEG of that. Oh, I, I, I absolutely will. I'd love to so, see that. Uh, on the Chandler piece, though, he goes, you know, there's a really interesting story about this piece. And in terms of word balloon guests, Jim is my white whale. He's my holy grail. And he knows it. And I and and I always, you know, this year I had my recorder, but I also know that how, as you said, when he makes an entrance at a panel, he, he of, of course he does. He's a performer. He's a raconteur. He likes to have everything, you know set a certain way, and he'll tell his story his way. And that's totally fine. I, I respect that. But he's about to tell me the story behind and why Chandler is such an interesting uh, piece, because he goes, you know, this entire piece tells a story. And I go, Jim, I've been trying to get you on Word Balloon for nine years. I said, it's okay if you say no. I would never start recording you without you knowing it. I do have my recorder right now. You are about to tell me this story in front of all these people. There's about seven or eight people around the table. And I said, could I, I go, would, would it be all right if I, if I record? He puts his hand on my shoulder. He's like, John, I really appreciate the way you asked me that. And the answer is no. <laughs> and I laughed and I because that's Jim and that's totally fine. He said, like, but we'll do it someday, John, someday. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> it's like, it's, Totally fine. I enjoy the 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 one on ones that I have with with Steranko. And if it never happens on Wimbledon, so be it. I've got more than enough memories and fun stories. And it's almost fun that he says no every time anyway. And then he told me the story of the of the page, and it's it's incredible. It's fantastic. That's cool. But yeah, I will. I'll, I'll send you that Indiana Jones thing. But yeah, I, I, forgive me. I just had to. I had to mention that because uh, you know, yeah, it's, <laughs> every year Steranko, it's there's always an interesting encounter. I'll tell you, my, my big Stan Lee meeting was the very first time I met him. It was at the very first Long Beach Con. And this cool. was back in maybe 2001, 2002. Okay. So oh, was, I was thinking it was, was, a, a, back it was, or whatever it was a ways back, maybe okay. 2003. I, it was, it was at, least, at least 10 years ago, if not more. Okay. And this was before he had been in all the Marvel movies. It was before he had his you know, Stan Lee TV shows and all this. I mean, he was still Stan Lee, but he wasn't as big as he is now. This is pre him having an entourage, you know, every, everywhere he goes. And, you know, I went and I brought my copy of Amazing Spider-Man 88 with me to get signed. And it was like a copy that I had bought probably in 19... 19- 78 or 80 to replace the one that I cut all the pictures out of. Right. Um, and, you know, so I brought that to get autographed and, you know, there were 50 or 60 people in line, you know, which is not anywhere near like today where you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people right. in line. And, you know, I'm about halfway back the line. And when I get up, you know, and everybody in line's got, Silver Surfer number one, Spider-Man number 50, you know, all these key books, and they're all sure. getting them signed. 
And so I give him Amazing Spider-Man number 88. He, like, looks at it, and he looks at me, and he says, why did you pick this book to bring me? I haven't seen this book since I wrote it. And he starts, <laughs> and he starts flipping through it, you know. And he's, ah, this is good, you know. <laughs> like, and I said, cool. Stan, I got to tell you, the reason I brought this is because this is the first comic book I remember buying for myself off the rack in 1970. Wow. And I bought this comic book, and once I read it, I had to buy the next one, and then the next one, and I've bought comic books every month since then until today. And he's like, ah, oh, come around the table and get a picture with me. You know, and it's like That's very cool. I come around the table, he puts his arm around my shoulder, and this is before cell phones, you know, with cameras in them and stuff. So sure. somebody took my regular camera and took a picture of me with Stan. And I still have that picture around on my, you know, wallpaper on my computer every now and again and stuff. But I mean, that was, that was, you know, to me, it was like, you know, really cool because that was. Again, that's the kind of guy he is with his fans, and that's kind of why, especially now that he's older, you know, he's like the same age as my dad. I think he's like ninety-three now. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, so, and, and and I mean, you know, and not. I mean, don't get me wrong. For ninety-three, ridiculously good health and and of a sharp mind, but he is kind of you know bony in a kind of a frail way that I, I get scared. I, I there was I don't even remember the specifics, but either last year or two years ago at New York. There was kind of a like momentary like, hey, like give him room to breathe, okay, please, like back. <laughs> so as much as annoying as that entourage is, if not, it is it is kind of scary, and he is that kind of age where as much as fans are just excited and want to say hello, I can see a, a, a rush of people really being a dangerous thing. Yeah. So so that's cool that you. <laughs> You had your moment at a, at a safer time in in Stan's time. That's that's very very cool, man. That's excellent. Yeah. And then I, I I subsequently then the next year, a couple of years later, John Romita Senior was at San Diego, and I got his autograph on that same comic. So oh, that's great. That's, so you got them both. Yeah. That's wonderful. So I got them both on there. So that's that's kind of like outside of my Amazing Fantasy fifteen, which if I had to pick like one comic book. To run out of the burning house with it would be that amazing fantasy fifteen, but that Spider Man eighty eight would be number two. <laughs> wow, you see, and for me, it's been interviewing uh, the guys that were my storytellers, so those first Bronze Age storytellers that I read, and um, it's been talking to Elliot Magan and Jerry Conway and Marty Pasco, and um, you know, I mean, it's it, you know, Walt Simonson is in there as well, and Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. So it's been that pleasure, Gene Colan, to to get to interview these guys uh, has been my treat like that. And, you know, sometimes in person, most of the time over the phone. But uh, that's okay. I love love your interviews with those guys. I love your interview with Gene Colan in particular because Gene is one of my top number one favorite artists of all time. Um, I just loved it. I never actually got to meet him, but I did get a commission from him through the mail. Me too. Uh, Go on. What'd you, you know, get? I'll, we'll exchange. Well, mine what, was mine was stupid at the time. I should have got a different thing. But you know, it's when I you knew me back when I was like had that phase where I was getting Zaytana drawn by all the different artists. No, I didn't realize you were collecting that actually. Go I, on. So I so that's you got? I would get Zaytana. I have like probably a hundred and fifty sketches of Zaytana by all different artists. And, cool. Uh, 
you know, Terry Moore and you know, I, so Gene did a Zaytana for me. That's awesome. Mine is uh, a Blade. Yeah, I I subsequently got a Daredevil from him. Um, That's fantastic. My, uh, you know that Tomorrow's book that came out that had the um, sketches that came. Remember when Tomorrow's was doing those, um, the uh, really nice uh, books featuring some of those classic artists, and they had yeah. a special edition that came with a sketch. Yes. Yeah. So I got my Gene Colan one. I got a Daredevil sketch with that. I got a Hulk. And it's sketch. An original. It's not. It's oh not no! A, it's, it's an original pencil sketch. Fantastic. So a, That's wonderful. I have a Daredevil. I got a, a Hulk by Sal Buscema. I have a Thor wow. by Joe Sinnott. Wow. Uh, Man, I have a, that's excellent. I have a Flash by Carmine Infantino. Wow, that's excellent. I have a Mike Grell Flash and a Mike Grell Green Arrow. I have a, a, a Gene Colan Blade. I'm looking on my walls right now. Uh, I have a Dick Ayers Iron Man. And even though he didn't draw him, uh, I just figured being from the Marvel bullpen in the 60s. And I made him use the very temporary armor that had that uh, faceplate uh-huh. that, with the points. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> That was my. That's what I wanted because to me that was always like the craziest but fun like piece of armor that I liked of Iron Man's. And then I have a, uh, a Jose De Zuniga, or rather a Tony De Zuniga, uh, Jonah Hex. I, I have a. So we're comparing those things. So I, I actually bought off of eBay. I have a really nice Dracula by Gene. Awesome. Um, yeah, I have a Bob Layton Iron Man. Cool. And by Dick Ayers, I've got a Ghost Rider. Perfect. The Western one. And, yes, I figured as and much that one on. I bought down at SoCal Comics down in San Diego, but I met Dick at a San Diego show, and I had him do – he did a wasp for me. Oh, fantastic. That's a wasp, which is really nice. That's excellent, man. And that's, that's really great. Mike Grell I saw at PhoenixCon a couple of years ago, and he did a, a Green Arrow for me. Outstanding. And uh, I also have a Tony DiZaniga, same thing. I, I saw him. Jonah Hex? Uh, no, it was, he had this really big uh, Shanna the She-Devil. Oh, fantastic. And uh, he, I didn't commission him to do it, but he had it at his table. And I said, oh, you know, and it was very reasonably priced. And he autographed it to me, you know, to Bob, the guy with fine taste. Because I like his work, because I was telling him how like, I grew up reading his Savage Sword of Conan, and I just you know I loved the guy, um, you know his art, and you know so he he personalized that to me. So that's outstanding. No, and that's that's how I got uh, the uh, Jonah Hex. He had already drawn it, but it was re- like you said, it was under a hundred bucks, and I'm like, well, God, it's from Tony Dezaniga. I'm, I'm not going to say no. And I uh, and he personalized it. It's beautiful and it's it's framed. The uh, the col- the colon uh, blade I did have. I commissioned that. And then another commission that I have. And I'm sorry to say that um, I, I certainly hope eventually his talent comes back. Uh, Norm Brayfogle, who we all know uh, had that tough stroke recently, yeah, and and is is still recovering and, and doing great. And I'm really glad about that. But um, I bought. Uh, I, I wanted. I'm like you know, Norm. I don't ever remember seeing you draw Superman. He goes, I only did it a couple times. And I said, I really want to see what a Superman would look like from you. And I had him. He goes, What do you want me to have him do? I said, Have him reacting to a piece of kryptonite. And it's great. And it's just this glowing rock. And he put some great shadow work in there and everything. And it's this beautiful pen uh, pen drawing of Superman kind of cowering over uh, a piece of kryptonite. And then he had a Batman 
that he was going to give to, to you know a commission that he did for someone, but it actually definitely had a, a water splotch, and this one bat is like totally like water screwed up the bat and everything. And he goes, you know something, give me forty bucks more, and I'll give you the Batman sketch. I'm like done. Oh yeah, wow. I have I yeah I have Superman <laughs> I have a Superman and I have a Batman from North Britain. How can you turn that down, man? Oh my God, yeah. So you know, and I, I've got I you know I don't have a ton, but I but the stuff I've got, and, I, and one of the reasons why was much like you were saying about space, I never had the wall space, and now in my current apartment, I finally have some like legitimate wall space and everything. So uh, you know, I got a I got a silkscreen Daredevil that uh, David Mack did for me, and. Um, a nice Alex Savia Green Lantern because he was one of the Green Lantern. He was he did the Green Lantern Corps magazine uh, comic in the eighties, um, you know stuff like that. Yeah. And then a bunch of modern guys that who I love and you know Gabriel Hardman piece of uh, uh, Chris Somney. I had I had Gabe Hardman do a Doc Savage for me. Uh, That's great because that his style is so yeah. nice. Because I love Doc Savage. I I'm a big I'm Doc a Savage. Savage guy. Oh yeah, too man. Absolutely. Um, Norm, I just, Norm Brayfogle, yeah, uh, just to go back to that, I have two yeah, pages. Yeah. He did Avengers Annual, the 2000 Annual, where the okay. Avengers and the Defenders were in that. And I got like two pages of that, one from him. One's like got like almost the whole team of the Avengers on the page, and the other one's got all the Defenders almost on it, including That's Hellcat actually- and just like the whole thing. I've had those up on my wall for a long time. Well, as you said, that being a Savage fan um- – I got and you'll appreciate this being a, a '50s comics fan and stuff. I got him, I got uh, Gabe's version of Captain Comet. Oh, that's cool. And yeah, very high. And it is very classically space opera. It could be like you know people who don't know are like, is that Flash Gordon? I'm like, no, actually, it's Captain Comet. And uh, it's it's cool. And I uh, yeah, I, I, it's, that's one of my favorite pieces. I also have a Mike Kaluta shadow. Oh, that's cool. I don't have anything uh, by Kaluta. I would love to have something by Kaluta. He could not have been nicer. And this one is about ten years ago. That but um. I, it's he did it on a backboard, on a comic book backboard with with just a pen. But it's a great shadow piece, and literally, like you know, he would do it and he'd draw and he'd be like, like it was weird. He'd like immediately start drawing when you'd request something. So you're like, oh, how much am I in for? And it's like, <laughs> and, and it's like, well, how much do I owe you? And he's like, how much do you want to pay? <laughs> and he literally, that's what he'd say. And I go. Am I insulting you by giving you sixty dollars? And he's like, not at all. And I'm like, okay. You know, I'm like, that's fine. Oh, and yeah, actually, this year I, I I should mention I bought a small. It's like a six by nine Submariner from Ramona Fraden that she had already drawn, but it was at her table. And God, I love her. Where I have a metamorphosis. I, I have a I have a Ramona Fraden um, Aquaman. Fantastic. Along you know, with I was, the Topo. The octopus. That's the, the octopus. That's awesome. You see, she had pieces like that, but they were, you know, I had I had already like committed money and stuff, and I'm and this was like Saturday or Sunday at her table, and I'm like, oh, you know, she's got all these great pictures, and I almost, and you'll appreciate this, I came really close to picking up. It was Bruce Gordon in the Eclipso outfit, but he's still Bruce Gordon, and he's holding the black diamond before he oh, changes. That's cool. And I thought about that, and I even asked her, I said, did you ever do the Eclipso book? And she's like, no, I just like the character. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I go, but that's so inside. And I go, I kind of like the irony of her doing Namor instead, instead of, of Aquaman. Aquaman. Yeah. yeah, so I'm like, kind of like with Brayfogle with Superman. And I'm like, ah, I think I'm going to take this from you, Ramona. And she's like, yeah, no problem. And then she, she was great. She's very gruff, but also very, it's like pleasant enough for being a woman in her early 80s or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I like her. She's very – I would say no nonsense. I don't think she suffers fools, but she was she was pleasant enough. And, it, it, yeah, I've, I've seen her a couple times at, at cons. It's it's tough, man. I, I want to get, like, 
these people while they're still around and, and while I've got the money to spend. Yeah. That's where my uh, interest is more is like I'd rather get an original – like a commission piece or a sketch, you know, at a con, a con sketch. Those to me – because it's almost like a private performance, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean I, I kind of like go back and forth between that and original pages that have been published. I sent a lot – I went through a sketch phase for a number of years, and I got a lot of sketches. I have a lot of sketches. Are they up or are they in like books well, and stuff I've, like that? Well, I've got some of them up. I own, I mean, I literally, when I say a lot, I mean like hundreds and hundreds. I believe it. So, so obviously, yeah, man. I, I don't have the space to have them all up, but um, I, you know, I have some favorites that I keep up and I, I switch them around every now and again. Um, that's that's what I intend to do in my new place, man. And that's what I was I was doing was starting to finally frame this stuff. And that's what I told friends. They're like, well, you don't have the wall space to put up everything. I'm like, no, but I go, I can rotate. And it'll be like a museum. When you come over, it'll be new pieces and stuff. I, every I had few some months. friends give me, I have like uh, six frames out in the hallway outside okay. the comic room. And some friends gave me as a present this year around my birth for my birthday an Archie story. I, I like Archie stuff. I love Archie. Um, and I have a particular weakness for, uh, like, I'm sure many males, Betty and Veronica when they're in their bikinis at the beach. Sure. <laughs> and they had, uh, they found this six-page story that, like, the very first, they're at the beach, and there's this plane flying over the beach with towing the banner that says, Eat Bob's Ice Cream. <laughs> So it's got my name in it. It's got, um, it's got the gang. You know, the girls in bikinis are at the beach and stuff. So they gave me. They got that six-page story and they gave it to me. And I've got the whole six-page story up on the wall. That that'll be up for at least a year. That's uh, Andrew and Lisa. I give my shout out to them. That's that, fantastic. Uh, who was who was the artist? Um, I don't remember off the top of my head. Was it was it from the Bronze Age? You think or the sixties? It or was. 70s? It was more like seventies, eighties. Okay, that's cool. Hey, maybe it was a Stan Goldberg. You never know. I'll have to check. Because yeah, I was wondering. Because um, uh, I forget who I was just talking to, and they were telling me that they. Uh, oh, it was a, <laughs> a good friend of mine who's a comic retailer, and that he had to, he had won a, a, a Dan DiCarlo. Uh, Betty and Veronica sketch that was an original and stuff at an auction. And um, yeah, I was just saying how much I, I I love him and Stan Goldberg's work, and really even again back to our friend Norm Breyfogle. Uh Norm was doing good Archie work uh, recently on that Life with Archie series. On a, a Dan DeCarlo life. note, I was talking. I was I went down to the IDW offices last week um, in San Diego and visited them, and uh, I was talking to Scott Dunbuyer down mm-hmm. there, and you know Scott. I mean, he's got. You go into the guy's office, and he's got like about twenty Eisner awards sitting on top of this yep. file cabinets for all those <laughs> artist editions. Sure, but, uh, he he was. I was talking to him because a buddy of mine had talked to him, and I bought some Archie art from him off of uh, the internet before, because you know he used to be an art dealer, and he was a fan before he was an art dealer. But he he was then like he used to buy art from DiCarlo at cons. And he was one of only about two or three people that bought art from him. And at one point, Dan said, hey, do you want to buy all the art that's left? And he wow, about 5,000 pages for something like a buck or two a page. Wow. 
and he said he ran ads in Comic Buyer's Guide for years where he would sell like a complete story of his choice, you know, but it would feature the gang in it, you know, for, you know, $10 a page. And, you know, it just, he sold a lot of pages that way out of just a classified that he would run in Comics Buyer's Guide. And it was just like, but, you know, Archie Comics, I mean, it's like every story had the Archie gang. And it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, what are they going to have, like a story of like Pop Tate doing inventory in the back room or something? I mean, it's like <laughs> every Archie story's got the Archie gang in it, you know? So it's like any Archie story you pull out is going to have the gang in it. Of course. No, that's awesome. Very cool, man. That's excellent. Well, Bobby, I, nice going, man. I uh, I enjoyed the, uh, the the walk through your collection. I think that's really cool, and I'm. It was good to hear uh, that you had a good San Diego. I agree with you, and it's uh, the thing I remind people when they when they get frustrated or, or you know get jaded. I love my favorite people are the ones that complain about San Diego that don't go to San Diego and don't know what they're talking about when they go. Well, it's all Hall H, and you yeah. know, uh, waiting in line and forget it. And it's as you just said. I always have the same experience. Very rarely do I wait in line. It's usually because there's a, a big panel that precedes the, the one that I want to see or is coming up next. And even in those cases, I've yet to really not like get to see what I really want to see. And those those comic history panels and also, uh, we didn't go into it, but the comic academic panels sometimes mm-hmm. where you get the professors who are doing really interesting you know histories of, of comics that we don't know about. I mean, God, I saw it. Were you at the Trina Robbins it was Trina Robbins, uh, Maggie Thompson, Ramona Fraden, uh, Malcolm, Major Malcolm Wheeler's uh, Wheeler Nicholson's uh, daughter I, or granddaughter. I listened to that. I it was recorded. Okay, it was recorded, yeah. so I uh, actually listened to a recording of it. I missed it. The thing I will say right. about San Diego is two things that play off of what you just said. Those guys who were whining about it that had never been. I think there's a an element of sour grapes in that. <laughs> Absolutely, and. You know, the other thing about not only are there so many comic book oriented panels and there's everything. I mean, 20 people sure. could go to that con and have 20 completely different experiences. Sure. You know, um, you and I choose to go to just comic book panels. But, you know, I know people that go and they mix it up. They'll go to this comic book panel, but they want to see this celebrity or see this or that. Whatever makes you happy. But, you know, if you're the one who wants to go see the cast of Arrow, don't come complain that you had to wait in line a long time because there's 50,000 other people that want to see Stephen Amell, right? You know, right. right. And, you know, that's just the way that it's going to be. But, right. You know, not only do they have a tremendous amount of pure comics panels, but they have so many pure comics panels that, you know, I went to 27 panels. There were probably 70 panels I would have liked to have gone to. You know, it's like not only that 27 panels is more that I went to is more panels than pretty much any other convention even has on their entire agenda. I and agree. it was like a third or a quarter of the of the total count of comic panels. Not even. I mean, it was probably a third of the ones I wanted to see and probably a sixth of the total pure comic panels. They must have had I hear 150 comic book panels at that thing. Well, I, I, you know, the last, I didn't do it this year, but the last couple of years, I would count how many per day. And there were always at least a dozen, if not more, a day of, from, from preview night through Sunday. Yeah. And, and it's like, so no, it's, it's like you're wrong and 
you got to stop saying that because it's not true. And if they, if all they're getting out of Comic Con is what they read at CNN or Yahoo or Google, you know, the various news sites of the major news sites, then yeah, all they're going to get is Hall H. Well, you know, the other That's thing is, the other thing is, and it's not a knock against cosplayers, but you know, hey, if all you know about a Comic Con is what they put on the news, you know, you'd think that ninety percent right. of the people are running around in a costume. That's true. And, That's the question I always get from yeah. from my non comic yeah, friends. It's like, what like, are you going to dress up? Dress up? <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's uh, like me. you know, like five <laughs> percent of the people are wearing a costume at one of these conventions, but you know, ninety percent of the people that get shown on TV are wearing a costume. So the That's true. the media view of these conventions is a incredibly skewed version of reality. Hmm. Yep. Just like pretty much everything else that the media shows. You know? Yeah, sad but true, man. No, you're 100% right, Bob. Very Present true. Present company true. accepted. Oh, thank you, sir. Likewise. Exactly. And if you, you know, go to uh, go to Bob's uh, website. And right now, of course, I, I, I took the page down, Bob. So it's comic... Uh, Spectrum.com. Comicspectrum.com, absolutely. And, uh, you, you know, check... Check out his collection and his want list, and uh, what he's what he's looking for to complete. I sent you via uh, Facebook the Indiana Jones Duranko. Very cool. So it'll be waiting for you as an instant message. Um, but uh, no, man, a lot of fun, and I, I thank you, and uh, look forward to seeing you next year. And uh, stay in touch. And if uh, if you know, God, if you get FF one number one, let me know. I will do. I. It, it'll be a while before I uh, work myself back up to another uh, purchase of that. Uh, Immensitude. Uh, I understand. Well, you got kind of cooling it. Uh, you know, last you year, last you year know. my big purchase was I bought an Alex Ross original. Oh, I do know that, and I forget what you, what you got again. It was a cover from the Dynamite Doc Savage. It goes back to my Doc. It's my absolutely, and, and he I was, love Doc Savage, and I love Alex Ross, and he was channeling Bama with that he stuff, was wasn't indeed. he? Indeed, and uh, on the. On the extra plus side was it cost a fraction of what you know one of like something with a Marvel or DC superhero by him would have cost. Do you have any original art from either the Marvel Curtis magazine stuff or the comic stuff or anything like that? Um, I do not. I wish I did. <laughs> or you know, or a Bama. Do you have any Bama like uh, pieces of art or anything? No, I, I have okay. one. I have one drawing of Doc by Ken Bald, who was a uh, Street and Smith artist. Okay. Not a wow. Not one a, of the original Paul Pollers. Yeah, but not, it's not an original cover or anything. It's just a sketch of Doc by him. That's cool. Was it more the uh, not the cowl? No, hair? it was. It was the uh, no. Actually, because he had done it later, so it is the Bama Doc. It is the widow's okay kind of skull oh, cap. Is. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I do like that original draw, drawing. That frankly. It's too bad Buster Crab never played Doc Savage, because I think Buster Crab in his prime in, in the 30s absolutely would have been a very credible Doc Savage. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, you know, the the old stuff. I mean, I'm I'm actually in progress of buying a big pulp collection of Doc Savage. That's cool. I've got like 120 pulps. Oh, that's it's a great! Massive man. collection of pulps that I'm. That's I'm very making, impressive. I'm making time payments on, so another, uh, <laughs> another uh, six months to a year, and I'll I'll get this big box of a whole bunch of uh, Doc Savage pulps. 
Is it is it exclusively Doc or it's is, all it, doc. is it? It's all Doc. Wow, that's fan. That's almost because it's like 150 some. 180. Right? 180. 180. That's right. Oh, very cool. May see Anthony Tolan. If you were listening right now, would be yelling at me. So uh, well, he'd be yelling at me anyway because he's you know he's a good guy. Don't give me. But I like talking to Anthony keep on the Bantam paperbacks. You know that. So getting the, yeah, man. Never really. Me too. I have got like three pulps right now. Uh, yeah, that's I all I have. I only have meal. three as well. Uh, but you know the paperbacks, I have all of them. That's fantastic. I I don't have all of them. I certainly read enough of them between uh, used bookstores and also got through the eighties, at least if not the nineties. Bantam was still releasing them. Well, yeah, they did those omnibuses, and you know then Will Murray started doing them. There was the Philip Jose Farmer Escape from Loki, that was big fan, was really cool. Yep. Um, I, I grew up on that uh, um, Doc Savage's Apocalyptic Life, Life by Farmer. Love that. Love that. I got to see Philip Jose Farmer speak in Peoria at a library, and it was really amazing. Oh, and he was very cool. Well, we discovered that we're both big Doc fans. So <laughs> that's that's <laughs> actually very fun, John. I, I like that. No, absolutely, man. No, I'm a, I'm a huge and – and I'm a big Shadow fan too. So did you buy – I just bought on my Kindle. Uh, is, didn't Will Murray just write that – Shadow Doc uh, crossover. He did. I haven't got that yet. Um, did you, I've been getting. I've been getting all the ones that you know, all the Will Murray uh, ones. You know, like sure. the King Kong one. Did you read that? I was going to say I, I have it on my Kindle. I haven't read that yet, and I have I have uh, several books like that on my Kindle. I also have um, Ed Cato uh, did a Captain Action story, or I or a commission one because I know he has the license now for Captain Action. And it's done like those Will Murray Doc Savages or those, uh, you know, when when you get to see a cool shadow story or something like that. But it has, the it, you know, a, a great looking cover that definitely could have been like one for a Will Murray book and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I've got those those and uh, and, yeah, I've got Skull Island and I've got the shadow crossover, too. So, no, Will Murray's an excellent writer. God, his shield uh, paperback from the 80s was awesome. Do, do you have any of the old... Uh Shadow comics from the forties no. that have Doc Savage stories in them. No, I'm aware of them because of Anthony's book. And in fact, Anthony Tolan was saying, you know, and for for listeners, Anthony reprints uh, two pulps uh, in a uh, trade paperback uh, edition of both Shadow and Doc Savage stories, and has been doing that, and has great. Um, That's the Radio back. Archives ones, right? Yep, yep. Those are excellent, and. Um, he uh, he did the Shadow Scrapbook in 1979, and I bought it when I was a kid and still have my original copy. And he swears he's in the process of, of making a new one, and uh, it's going to be bigger and thicker and stuff, but it had a lot of those. It, it reprinted either uh, Shadow – I know it reprinted a newspaper strip story. Uh, Walter Gibson helped him you know, write the original Shadow Scrapbook. He was still around. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. No, I love – no, classic pulp. I'm a big fan of. I've been buying the IDW Secret Agent Corrigan oh, yeah. comics. Those are fantastic. IDW does a great job with that uh, Library of American Comics. Hell yes, hell yeah. God, those Superman ones from the early '60s are fantastic. It's great because they're like alternate Earth versions yeah. of the, the Silver Age comics. The books, the comics that Wayne Boring did, Kurt Swan did the strips, and vice versa. So they're like you know they're Kurt they're Kurt Swan stories in the twelve cent books and they're and they're Wayne boring strips in the in the in the collections and vice versa. It's fantastic. So 
But no, Bob, I'm glad we talked. This was excellent. Thank you very much. And like I said, stay in touch and we'll talk soon. It was an honor and a privilege to be on Word Balloon, John. Thank you, man. There you go. Bob Retall. Check out his website, comicspectrum.com. And uh, thank you for listening again to another episode of Word Balloon. I hope it was entertaining. I know I had fun. Word Balloon is brought to you by the Cincy Comic Con, which is coming September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. I'm really looking forward to this show. It's my third Cincy Comic Con, and uh, I get to be part of the action because I'll be moderating panels and uh, helping uh, figure out the programming as far as panels go with uh, Tony and Kara Moore and the rest of the uh, great staff of Cincy Comic Con. And they make it easy because they always get great creators to show up at this show. As I have said before, it's an intimate show, but by the same token, lots of star power there that you will want to see. I'm talking about people like Phil Noto, Jeff Parker, Eric Powell, Derek Robertson, Mark Kidwell, Ben Templesmith, Dave Wachter, Mike Norton, uh, Mike Hawthorne. In fact, Mike Hawthorne, Tony Moore, and Rick Remender are going to be looking back at the 10th anniversary of Fear Agent. I can't believe it's been 10 years. Ray Fox is going to be there. Can't wait to see him. Ming Doyle, the exceptional artist, writer, who's doing great work on Constantine. Uh, I should say Hellblazer. I don't know what the hell they call John Constantine these days. But uh, I loved her series, The Kitchen, as well, from Vertigo that uh, wrapped up this year. Such a good series. Matthew Clark, the exceptional Superman and Doom Patrol artist. Chris Burnham, the excellent collaborator of people like Joe Casey and Grant Morrison, a wonderful writer, creator on his own right as well. Jeremy Bastian, Cursed Pirate Girl, my buddy Ryan Brown, God Hates Astronauts, Cullen Bunn. Uh, There's going to be a Fables panel with Bill Willingham, Matthew Sturgis, and Chris Robertson. Of course, Chris uh, also will probably be talking iZombie. Lots of interesting stuff. The Cincinnati Comic-Con called Cincy Comic-Con. It's uh, coming on September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. For more details, go to their website, Cincy, C-I-N-C-Y Comic-Con.com. And Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much for your support via Patreon. Uh, if you have questions on how you can uh, contribute, you can go to wordballoon.com and click on the tab, and that will take you to the links to the Patreon page. And uh, by all means, if, if you can afford a dollar a month, I sure do appreciate the support. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners, uh, uh, over 100 strong, that are supporting this podcast. And uh, thank you very much. It, uh, it makes it easier getting to some of these conventions and uh, making the connections and uh, making better programming. So uh, I really appreciate the support. And also, another way you can support Word Balloon, don't forget I've got uh, my Amazon uh, page. If you go to wordballoon.com and click on the link there, it will take you directly to Amazon, and you can make your purchases normally like you usually do. But when you do, no extra charge to you. I get a couple cents on the dollar uh, as, a, as a thank you. And so uh, if you want to uh, help support Word Balloon while you're shopping through Amazon, go to wordballoon.com, click on the tab. It will take you directly to Amazon. And again, it's never an extra charge, but uh, it's a great way to help support the podcast while you're doing your normal Amazon shopping. So some of the great books or movies you might hear about on Word Balloon, you can pick them up there and uh, Word Balloon gets a cut. Pretty sweet deal. Thank you again for your support. As I always tell you, if you like Word Balloon, let a friend know. Uh, It would really be great to uh, continue to uh, get the uh, listenership growing as it has been for all these 10 years. Uh, If you get the show through uh, iTunes, uh, do me a favor. If you don't mind, uh, you could rate the show and write a review. That would be excellent. Um, It's been a while. In fact, my old feed finally disappeared from iTunes in their usual mysterious way. So I went from having over 100 reviews to now just 
over 60. It'd be great to get some new reviews. So if you've done it before, uh, go to go to iTunes, and uh, the chances are that your your review may not be up there anymore. So uh, if you can give a review, go to our bed. Uh, feedback is totally welcome. If you don't like what I do, I'm totally cool with that as well. But uh, give an honest review of what you think of Word Balloon at iTunes. That's great. Like me on Facebook. Uh, I've got my Word Balloon Network page on Facebook. And, of course, uh, you can find me on Facebook under my name as well, John Suntress. I'm on Twitter at John Word Balloon. Uh, so check me out over there. Occasionally I get the uh, gumption of writing a uh, Tumblr uh, comment or, of two, or two. And uh, you can follow me on Tumblr as well under Word Balloon. So uh, do that. And uh, thank you again for uh, paying attention to my nonsense. More nonsense is coming up in just a few days. Like I said, uh, positively overbooked in a good way. Uh, so many people said yes and have projects that they absolutely need to talk about as quickly as possible. So uh, more than uh, the usual four episodes a month that happened last month in July. It's going to happen again this month in August. Probably will happen as well in September. So uh, enjoy the extra programming on us. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2015. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.